Hey, you guys, uh, Mr. Chambers back again with another reading. So this time I'm going to be reading a book called Night uh, by a man named Ellie Weissel. Um, Mr. Weissel was a um, Jewish kid during the reign of the Nazi party uh, in Europe. He and his family were eventually taken from their homes, uh, put on cattle cars, um, and eventually ended up in a concentration camp. Um, they bounced around him and his father uh, between a couple different concentration camps, as you will read in the coming chapters of this book. Um, but really, this is his firsthand experience of his survival, his um, basically his retelling of the events that took place that, that eventually took most of his family, his friends, his loved ones, um, and millions of other people from this earth. Um, so this is kind of just an introduction to the book. Um, I will say when I was in eighth grade, I, I read this book and it has honestly left a pretty profound impact on me. It was one of the first books that I read as a kid that I felt that it really made me feel more grown up than really anything else I'd ever read. Um, it was really eye-opening. Um, I, I had heard of the Holocaust. I had I, I knew of the Nazis and of Hitler, um, but but to the depths and the extensions that that everything went, I, I truly had no idea. Um, I'm going to read this book and I'll, I'll break it down by chapter. Um, the chapters aren't necessarily numbered in the books, but I'll just kind of go in order like that. But what I wanted to do before I get to chapter one, um, there's a preface. And an introduction to the book. I'm not going to read the whole thing, um, but I just thought just to give some background context, mostly to my students, uh, about why this book was written in the first place. Um, Eli, Eli, Eli Weissel has a, a preface, so it's like the opening of the book, and I just wanted to read that part. So um, it says, if in my lifetime I was to write only one book, this would be the one. Just as the past lingers in the present, all my writings after night, including those that deal with biblical Talmudic or Hasidic themes profoundly bear its stamp and cannot be understood cannot be understood if one has not read this very first of my works. Why did I write it? Did I write it so as not to go mad or on the contrary to go mad and in order to understand the nature of madness, the immense, terrifying madness that had erupted in history and in the conscience of mankind? was to leave behind a legacy of words, of memories, to help prevent history from repeating itself? Or was it simply to preserve a record of the ordeal I endured as an adolescent, at an age when one's knowledge of death and evil should be limited to what one discovers in literature? There are those who tell me that I survived in order to write this text. I am not convinced. I don't know how I survived. I was weak, rather shy, I did nothing to save myself. A miracle? Certainly not. If heaven could or would perform a miracle for me, why not for others more deserving than myself? It was nothing more than chance. However, having survived, I needed to give some meaning to my survival. Was it to protect that meaning that I set to paper an experience in which nothing made any sense? In retrospect, I must confess that I do not know or no longer know what I wanted to achieve with my words. I only know that without this testimony, my life as a writer, or my life period, would not have become what it is. That of a witness who believes he has a moral obligation to try to prevent the enemy 
from enjoying one last victory by allowing his crimes to be erased from human memory. Um, and I'm gonna I'm gonna pause there. He he goes on for uh, a couple more pages, just just kind of describing why he has has really set down to to write this book. Um, and the book we're going to be reading um, is an updated version of of the original version of the book. I think it was about 47 years after the fact that it was published um, originally in French. Um, now he's um, updated his version, taking on, taking honestly a couple things out, um, rewritten a couple scenes and things like that. And he's just kind of going into the uh, why he chose to do so. Um, but as he mentioned, he, uh, he doesn't feel that he was, you know, saved or it wasn't a, a, um, you know, a, a blessing that, that, that he was the person to survive, but, but through his survival, he feels an obligation to, to put those experiences into words for others to read and to learn about. Um, the book does deal with some sensitive subjects, death, um, violence, things like that. It's, it's a sad book. It's, it's not something that is, uh, has, you know, just like this amazingly positive spin at the end. It's, it's not the one where, um, you know, Faisal goes and, and saves millions of people or anything like that. It's, it's simply about his survival. Um, but what he has done in the aftermath of these events, what he, he chose to do with the rest of his life is, is really educate people, is to get the word out, is to spread that awareness and to just keep fighting to make sure that something like this never happens again. So um, without further ado, this is going to wrap up the introduction tonight. Uh, I hope you guys enjoy this book. I know I do. Um, just just a heads up, there's going to be words that I have, I struggled to pronounce words in different languages, people's names, things like that. So if I do just butcher a couple of these words, I do apologize. I, I'm, I'm definitely not trying to offend anybody. Um, yeah. So uh, yeah, man, this is Night by Eli Vicell. Thank you, guys. Chapter one. They called him Moisha the Beetle. As, this, as if his entire life he had never had a surname. He was the jack of all trades in a Hasidic house of prayer, a shtibel. The Jews of Sahay, the little town in Transylvania where I spent my childhood, were fond of him. He was poor and lived in utter penury. As a rule, our townspeople, while they did help the needy, did not particularly like them. Moisha the Beetle was the exception. He stayed out of people's way. His presence bothered no one. He had mastered the art of rendering himself insignificant, invisible. Physically, he was as awkward as a clown. His waif-like shyness made people smile. As for me, I liked his wide, dreamy eyes gazing off into the distance. He spoke little. He sang, or rather he chanted, and the few snatches I caught here and there spoke of divine suffering of the Shekinah in exile, where, according to Kabbalah, it awaits its redemption linked to that of man. Met him in 1941, was almost 13 and deeply observant. By day, I studied Talmud, and by night, I would run, this, run to the synagogue to weep over the destruction of the temple. One day, I asked my father to find me a master who could guide me in my studies of Kabbalah. You're too young for that. Maimonides tells us that one must be 30 before venturing into the world of mysticism, a world fraught with peril. First, you must study the basic subjects, those you are able to comprehend. Father was a cultured man, rather unsentimental. 
He rarely displayed his feelings, not even within his family, and was more involved with the welfare of others than with that of his own kin. The Jewish community of Saihei held him in highest esteem. His advice on public and even private matters was frequently sought. There were four of us children, Hilda, the eldest, then Bay. I was the third and the only son. The Sephora was the youngest. My parents ran a store. Hilda and Bay helped with the work. And as for me, my place was in the house of study, or so they said. There are no Kabbalists in Saihei, my father would often tell me. I wanted to drive the idea of studying Kabbalah from my mind. In vain, I succeeded on my own in finding a master for myself and the person of Moshe the Beetle. He had watched me one day as I prayed at dusk. Why do you cry when you pray? He asked as though he knew me well. I, I, I don't know, I answered, troubled. I had never asked myself that question. I cried because something inside me felt the need to cry. That was all I knew. Why do you pray? He asked after a moment. Why did I pray? Strange question. Why did I live? Why did I breathe? I, I, I don't know. I told him, even more troubled and ill at ease. I don't know. From that day on, I, I saw him often. He explained to me with great emphasis that every question possessed a power that was lost in the answer. Man comes closer to God through the questions he asks him, he liked to say. Therein lies true dialogue. Man asks, and God replies. But we don't understand his replies. We cannot understand them because they dwell in the depths of our souls and remain there until we die. The real answers, Eliza, you will find only within yourself. Why do you pray, Moshe? I asked him. I pray to the God within me for the strength to ask him the real questions. I spoke that way almost every morning remaining in the synagogue long after the faithful had gone, sitting in the semi-darkness where only a few half-burnt candles provided a flickering light. One evening I told him how unhappy I was not to be able to find in Saihei a master to teach me the Zohar, the Kabbalistic works, the secrets of Jewish mysticism. He smiled indulgently, and after a long silence he said, there are a thousand and one gates allowing entry into the orchard of mystical truth. Every human being has his own gate. He must not err and wish to enter the orchard through a gate other than his own. That would present a danger not only for the one entering, but also for those who are already inside. And Moisha the Beetle, the poorest of the poor of Saihei, spoke to me for hours on end about the Kabbalah's revelations and its mysteries. Thus began my initiation. Together we would read, over and over again, the same page of the Zohar, not to learn it by heart, but to discover within the very essence of divinity. And in the course of those evenings, I became convinced that Moshe the Beetle would help me enter eternity, into that time when question and answer 
would become one. And then one day, all foreign Jews were expelled from Zaihe, and Moshe the Beetle was a foreigner. Crammed into cattle cars by the Hungarian police, they cried silently. Standing on the station platform, we too were crying. The train disappeared over the horizon, and all that was left was thick, dirty smoke. Behind me, someone said, sighing, What do you expect? That's war. The deportees were quickly forgotten. A few days after they left, it was rumored that they were in Galatia, working, and even that they were content with their fate. Days went by, then weeks and months. Life was normal again. A calm, reassuring wind blew through our homes. The shopkeepers were doing good business. The students lived among their books, and the children played in the streets. One day, as I was about to enter the synagogue, I saw Moisha the Beetle sitting on a bench near the entrance. He told me what had happened to him and his companions. The train with the deportees had crossed the Hungarian border and, once in Polish territory, had been taken over by the Gestapo. The train had stopped. The Jews were ordered to get off and onto waiting trucks. The trucks headed towards a forest. There, everybody was ordered to get out. They were forced to dig huge trenches. When they had finished their work, the men from the Gestapo began theirs. Without passion or haste, they shot their prisoners, who were forced to approach the trench one by one and offer their necks. Infants were tossed into the air and used as targets for the machine guns. This took place in the Galatian forest, near Kalame. How had he, Moisha the Beetle, been able to escape? By a miracle. He was wounded in the leg and left for dead. Day after day, night after night, he went from one Jewish house to the next, telling his story and that of Malka, the young girl who lay dying for three days, and that of Toby, the tailor, who begged to die before his sons were killed. Moisha was not the same. The joy in his eyes was gone. He no longer sang. He no longer mentioned either God or Kabbalah. He spoke only of what he had seen. But people not only refused to believe his tales, they refused to listen. Some even insinuated that he only wanted their pity, that he was imagining things. Others flatly said that he had gone mad. As for Moisha, he wept and pleaded, Jews, listen to me. That's all I ask of you. No, mur no money, no pity, just listen to me. He kept shouting in synagogue between the prayer at dusk and the evening prayer. Even I did not believe him. I often sat with him after services and listened to his tales, trying to understand his grief. But all I felt was pity. You think I'm mad? He whispered, and tears like drops of wax flowed from his eyes. Once, I asked him the question, Why do you want people to believe you so much? In your place... I would not care whether they believed me or not. He closed his eyes as if to escape time. You don't understand, he said in despair. You cannot understand. I was saved miraculously. I succeeded in coming back. Where did I get my strength? I wanted to return to Saihe, 
to describe to you my death so that you might ready yourselves while there is still time. Life? I no longer care to live. I am alone. But I wanted to come back to warn you. Only no one is listening to me. This was towards the end of 1942. Thereafter, life seemed normal once again. London radio, which we listened to every evening, announced encouraging news. The daily bombings of Germany and Stalingrad, the preparation of the Second Front. So we, the Jews of Saihei, waited for better days that surely were soon to come. I continued to devote myself to my studies, Talmud during the day and Kabbalah at night. My father took care of his business in the community. My grandfather came to spend Rosh Hashanah with us so as to attend the services of the celebrated Reb of Borsh. My mother was beginning to think it was high time to find an appropriate match for Hilda. Thus passed the year 1943. Spring 1944. Splendid news from the Russian front. There could no longer be any doubt. Germany would be defeated. It was only a matter of time, months or weeks perhaps. The trees were in bloom. It was a year like so many others with its spring, its engagements, its weddings and its births. The people were saying, the Red Army is advancing with giant strides. Hitler will not be able to harm us even if he wants to. Yes, we even doubted his resolve to exterminate us. Annihilate an entire people? Wipe out a population dispersed throughout so many nations, so many millions of people? By what means? In the middle of the 20th century? And thus my elders concerned themselves with all manner of things, strategy, diplomacy, politics, and Zionism, but not with their own fate. Even Moshe the Beetle had fallen silent. He was wary of talking. He would drift through synagogue or through the streets, hunched over, eyes cast down, avoiding people's gaze. In those days, it was still possible to buy immigration certificates to Palestine. I asked my father to sell everything, to liquidate everything, and to leave. I am too old, my son, he answered. Too old to start a new life. Too old to start from scratch in some distant land. Budapest Radio announced that the fascist party had seized power. The regent Miklos Horthy was forced to ask a leader of the pro-Nazi Nihilist party to form a new government. Yet we were still not worried. Of course we, could, we had heard of the fascists, but it was all in the abstract. It meant mu- nothing more to us than a change in ministry. Next day brought really disquieting news. German troops had penetrated Hungarian territory with the government's approval. Finally, people began to worry in earnest. One of my friends, Moishe Chaim Berkowitz, returned from the capital for Passover and told us, the Jews of Budapest live in an atmosphere of fear and terror. Anti-Semitic acts take place every day, in the streets, on the trains. The fascists attack Jewish stores, synagogues. The situation is becoming very serious. The news spread through Saihei like wildfire. Soon, that was all people talked about, but not for long. Optimism soon revived. The Germans will not come this far. They'll stay in Budapest for strategic reasons, for political reasons. 
In less than three days, Germany arm, German army vehicles made their appearance on our streets. Anguish. German soldiers with their steel helmets and their death, death's head emblem. Still, our first impressions of the Germans were rather reassuring. The officers were billeted in private homes, even in Jewish homes. Their attitude towards their host was distant but polite. They never demanded the impossible, made no offensive remarks, and sometimes even smiled at the lady of the house. A German officer lodged in the Khan's house across the street from us. We were told he was a charming man, calm, likable, and polite. Three days after he moved in, he bought, brought Mrs. Khan a box of chocolates. The optimists were jubilant. Well, what do we tell you? You wouldn't believe us. There they are, your Germans. What do you say now? Where is their famous cruelty? The Germans were already in our town. The fascists were already in power. The verdict was already out. And the Jews of Saihe were still smiling. The eight days of Passover. The weather was sublime. My mother was busy in the kitchen. The synagogues were no longer open. People gathered in private homes. No need to provoke the Germans. Almost every rabbi's home became a house of prayer. We drank, we ate, we sang. The Bible commands us to rejoice during the eight days of celebration, but our hearts were not in it. We wished the holiday would end so as to not have to pretend. On the seventh day of Passover, the curtain finally rose. Germans arrested the leaders of the Jewish community. From that moment on, everything happened very quickly. The race towards death had begun. First edict. Jews were prohibited from leaving their residences for three days under penalty of death. Moishe the Beetle came running to our house. I warned you, he shouted and left without waiting for a response. Same day, the Hungarian police burst into every Jewish home in town. A Jew was henceforth forbidden to own gold, jewelry, or any valuables. Everything had to be handed over to the authorities under penalty of death. My father went down to the cellar and buried our savings. As for my mother, she went on tending to the many chores in the house. Sometimes she would stop and gaze at us in silence. Three days later, a new decree. Every Jew had to wear the yellow star. Some prominent members of the community came to consult with my father, who had connections at the upper level of the Hungarian police. They wanted to know what he thought of the situation. My father's view was that it was not all bleak, or perhaps he just did not want to discourage the others, to throw salt on their wounds. The Yellow Star? So what? It's not lethal. <sighs> Poor father. Of what then did you die? edicts were already being issued. We no longer had the right to frequent restaurants or cafes, to travel by rail, to attend synagogue, to be on the streets after six o'clock in the evening. Then came the ghettos. Two ghettos were created in Saihe. A large one in the center of town occupied four streets, and another smaller one extended over several alleyways on the outskirts of town. The street we lived on, Serpent Street, was in the first ghetto. We therefore could remain in our house, but 
As it occupied a corner, the windows facing the street outside the ghetto had to be sealed. We gave some of our rooms to relatives who had been driven out of their homes. Little by little, life returned to normal. The barbed wire that encircled us like a wall did not fill us with real fear. In fact, we felt that this was not a bad thing. We were entirely among ourselves, a small Jewish republic. Jewish council was appointed as well as a Jewish police force, a welfare agency, a labor committee, a health agency, a whole governmental apparatus. People thought this was a good thing. We would no longer have to look at all those hostile faces, endure those hate-filled stares. No more fear. No more anguish. We would live among Jews, among brothers. Of course, there still were unpleasant moments. Every day, the Germans came looking for men to load coal into the military trains. Volunteers for this kind of work were few, but apart from that, the atmosphere was oddly peaceful and reassuring. Most people thought that we would remain in the ghetto until the end of the war, until the arrival of the Red Army. Afterward, everyone would be as before. The ghetto was ruled by neither German nor Jew. It was ruled by delusion. From two weeks before Shavuot, a sunny spring day, people strolled seemingly carefree through the crowded streets. They exchanged cheerful greetings. Children played games, rolling hazelnuts on the sidewalks. Some schoolmates and I were in Ezra Malik's garden studying a Talmudic treatise. Night fell. Some 20 people had gathered in our courtyard. My father was sharing some anecdotes and holding forth on his opinion of the situation. He was a good storyteller. Suddenly, the gate opened, and Stern, a former shopkeeper who was now a policeman, entered and took my father aside. Despite the growing darkness, I could see my father turn pale. What's wrong? we asked. I don't know. I have been summoned to a special meeting of the council. Something must have happened. The story he had interrupted would remain unfinished. Going right now, he said. I'll return as soon as possible. I'll tell you everything. Wait for me. We were ready to wait as long as necessary. The courtyard turned into something like an antechamber to an operating room. We stood waiting for the door to open. Neighbors hearing the rumors had joined us. We stared at our watches. Time had slowed down. What was the meaning of such a long session? I have a bad feeling, said my mother. This afternoon, I saw new faces in the ghetto. Two German officers. I, I, I believe they were Gestapo. Since we've been here, we have not seen a single officer. Close to midnight. Nobody felt like going to sleep, though some people briefly went to check on their homes. Others left, but asked to be called as soon as my father returned. At last, the door opened and he appeared. His face was drained of color, and he was quickly surrounded. Tell us! Tell us what's happening! Say something! At that moment, we were so anxious to hear something encouraging. A few words telling us that there was nothing to worry about, that the meeting had been routine, just a review of welfare and health problems. But one glance at my father's face left no doubt. The news is terrible, he said at last. And then one word. 
transports. The ghetto is to be liquidated entirely. Archers were to take place street by street starting the next day. We wanted to know everything, every detail. We were stunned, yet we wanted to fully absorb the bitter news. Where will they take us? That was a secret. A secret for all except one, the president of the Jewish council. But he would not tell, or could not tell. The Gestapo had threatened to shoot him if he talked. There are rumors, my father said, his voice breaking, that we're being taken somewhere in Hungary to work in the brick factories. It seemed that here we are too close to the front. After a moment's silence, he added, Each of us will be allowed to bring his personal belongings. A backpack, some food, a few items of clothing, nothing else. And heavy silence. Oh, and wake the neighbors, said my father. They must get ready. The shadows around me roused themselves as if from a deep sleep and left silently in every direction. For a moment, we remained alone. Suddenly, Batya Reich, a relative who lived with us, entered the room. Someone is knocking at the sealed window, the one that faces outside. It was only after the war that I found out who had knocked that night. It was an inspector of the Hungarian police, a friend of my father's. Before we entered the ghetto, he had told us, Don't worry, I'll warn you if there is danger. Had he been able to speak to us that night, we might still have been able to flee. But by the time we succeeded in opening the window, it was too late. There was nobody outside. The ghetto was awake. One after the other, the lights were going on behind the windows. I went into the house of one of my father's friends. I woke the head of the household, a man with a gray beard and the gaze of a dreamer. His back was hunched over from untold nights spent studying. Get up, sir. Get up. You must ready yourself for the journey. Tomorrow you will be expelled, you and your family, you and all the other Jews. Where to? Please don't ask me, sir. Don't ask questions. God alone could answer you. For heaven's sakes, get up. He had no idea what I was talking about. He probably thought I had lost my mind. What are you saying? You ready for the journey? What journey? Why? What's happening? Have you gone mad? Half asleep, he was staring at me. Eyes filled with terror as though he expected me to burst out laughing and tell him to go back to bed. To sleep. To dream. That nothing had happened. It was all in jest. My throat was dry and the words were choking me, paralyzing my lips. There was nothing else to say. At last, he understood. He got out of bed and began to dress automatically. Then he went over to the bed where his wife lay sleeping and with infinite tenderness touched her forehead. She opened her eyes and it seemed to me that a smile crossed her lips. Then he went to wake his two children. They woke with a start, from the, torn from their dreams. I fled. Time went by quickly. It was already four o'clock in the morning. My father was running right and left, exhausted, consoling friends, checking with the Jewish council just in case the order had been rescinded. To the last moment, people clung to hope. 
The women were boiling eggs, roasting meat, preparing cakes, sewing backpacks. The children were wandering about aimlessly, not knowing what to do with themselves to stay out of the way of the grown-ups. Our backyard looked like a marketplace. Valuable objects, precious rugs, silver candlesticks, Bibles, and other ritual objects were strewn over the dusty grounds. Pitiful relics that seemed never to have had a home. All this under a magnificent blue sky. By 8 o'clock in the morning, wariness had settled into our veins, our limbs, our brains like molten lead. I was in the midst of prayer when suddenly there was shouting in the streets. I quickly unwound my flaccateries and ran to the window. Hungarian police had entered the ghetto and were yelling in the street nearby. All Jews, outside, hurry! They were followed by Jewish police who, their voices breaking, told us, The time has come. You must leave all this. Hungarian police used their rifle butts, their clubs, to indiscriminately strike old men and women, children and cripples. One by one, the house is emptied and the streets filled with people carrying bundles. By 10 o'clock, everyone was outside. The police were taking roll calls once, twice, 20 times. The heat was oppressive. Sweat streamed from people's faces and bodies. Children were crying for water. Water. It was water close by inside the houses, the backyards, but it was forbidden to break rank. Water, mother. I'm thirsty. Some of the Jewish police serotipiously went to fill a few jugs. My sisters and I were still allowed to move about as we were destined for the last convoy, so we helped as best we could. Last, at one o'clock in the afternoon, came the signal to leave. There was joy. Yes, joy. People must have thought there could be no greater torment in God's hell than being stranded here on the sidewalk, among the bundles in the middle of the street under a blazing sun. Anything seemed preferable to that. They began to walk without another glance at the abandoned streets, the dead, empty houses, the gardens, the tombstones. On everyone's back, there was a sack, and everyone's eyes, tears, and distress. Slowly, heavily, the procession advanced towards the gate of the ghetto. There I was, on the sidewalk, watching them file past, unable to move. Here came the chief rabbi, hunched over, his face strange-looking without a beard, a bundle on his back. His very presence in the procession was enough to make the scene seem surreal. It was like a page torn from a book, a historical novel, perhaps, dealing with the captivity in Babylon or the Spanish Inquisition. They passed me by, one after the other, my teachers, my friends, the others, some of whom I had once feared, some of whom I had found ridiculous, all those whose lives I had shared for years. There they went, defeated, their bundles, their lives in tow, having left behind their homes, their childhood. They passed me by like beaten dogs, with never a glance in my direction. They must have envied me. The procession disappeared around the corner. A few steps more and they were beyond the ghetto walls. The street resembled fairgrounds, deserted in haste. There was a little of everything. 
suitcases, briefcases, bags, knives, dishes, banknotes, papers, faded portraits, all the things one planned to take along and finally left behind. They had ceased to matter. Open rooms everywhere. Gaping doors and windows looked out into the void. It all belonged to everyone since it no longer belonged to anyone. It was there for the taking. An open tomb. A summer sun. We'd spent the day without food, but we were not really hungry. We were exhausted. My father had accompanied the deportees as far as the ghetto's gate. They first had been herded through the main synagogue, where they were thoroughly searched to make sure they were not carrying away gold, silver, or any other valuables. There had been incidents of hysteria and harsh blows. When will it be our turn? I asked my father. The day after tomorrow. Unless things work out. A miracle, perhaps? Where were the be people being taken? Did anyone know yet? No. The secret was well kept. Night had fallen. That evening we went to bed early. My father said, Sleep peacefully, children. Nothing will happen until the day after tomorrow, Tuesday. Monday went by like a small summer cloud, like a dream in the first hours of dawn. Intent on preparing our backpacks, on baking breads and cakes, we no longer thought about anything. The verdict had been delivered. That evening, our mother made us go to bed early. Conserve our strength, she said. It was to be the last night spent in our house. I was up at dawn. I wanted to have time to pray before leaving. My father had risen before all of us to seek information in town. He returned around eight o'clock. Good news. We were not leaving town today. We were only moving to the small ghetto. That is where we were to wait for the last transport. We would be the last to leave. At nine o'clock, the previous Sunday scenes were repeated. Policemen wielding clubs were shouting, All Jews outside! We were ready. I went out first. I did not want to look at my parents' faces. I did not want to break into tears. We remained sitting in the middle of the street like the others two days earlier. The same hellish sun. The same thirst. Only there was no one left to bring us water. I looked at my house in which I had spent years seeking my God fasting to hasten the coming of the Messiah, imagining what my life would be like later. Yet I felt little sadness. My mind was empty. Get up. Roll call. We stood. We recounted. We sat down. We got up again, over and over. We waited impatiently to be taken away. What were they waiting for? Finally, the order came. Forward, march. My father was crying. It was the first time I saw him cry. I'd never thought it possible. As for my mother, she was walking, her face a mask without a word, deep in thought. I looked at my little sister, Sapora, her blonde hair neatly combed, her red coat over her arm. A little girl of seven. On her back, a bag too heavy for her. She was clenching her teeth. She already knew it was useless to complain. 
Here and there, the police were lashing out with their clubs. Faster! I had no strength left. The journey had just begun, and I already felt so weak. Faster! Faster! Move, you lazy good-for-nothings! The Hungarian police were screaming. That was when I began to hate them, and my hatred remains our only link today. They were our first oppressors. They were the first faces of hell and death. They ordered us to run, and to run. Who would have thought that we were so strong? From behind their windows, from behind their shutters, our fellow citizens watched as we passed. Finally arrived at our destination. Throwing down our bundles, we dropped to the ground. O oh God, Master of the universe, in your infinite compassion, have mercy on us. Small ghetto. Only three days ago, people were living here. People who owned the things we were using now. They had been expelled, and we had already forgotten all about them. The chaos was even greater here than in the large ghetto. Its inhabitants evidently had been caught by surprise. I visited the rooms that had been occupied by my Uncle Mendel's family. On the table, a half-finished bowl of soup. A platter of dough waiting to be baked. Everywhere on the floor there were books. Had my uncle meant to take them along? We settled in. What a word. I went looking for wood. My sisters lit a fire. Despite her fatigue, my mother began to prepare a meal. We cannot give up. We cannot give up, she kept repeating. People's morale was not so bad. We were beginning to get used to the situation. There were those who even voiced optimism. The Germans were running out of time to expel us, they argued. Tragically, for those who had already been deported, it would be too late. As for us, chances were that we would be allowed to go on with our miserable little lives until the end of the war. The ghetto was not guarded. One could enter and leave as one pleased. Maria, our former maid, came to see us. Sobbing, she begged us to come with her to her village where she had prepared a safe shelter. Father wouldn't hear of it. He told me and my big sisters, If you wish, go there. I shall stay here with your mother and the little one. Naturally, we refused to be separated. Night. No one was praying for the night to pass quickly. The stars were but sparks of the immense conflagration that was consuming us. Were this conflagration to be extinguished one day, nothing would be left in the sky but extinct stars and unseeing eyes. There was nothing else to do but go to bed, in the beds of those who had moved on. We needed to rest, to gather our strength. At daybreak, the gloom had lifted. The mood was more confident. There were those who said, Who knows? They may be sending us away for our own good. The front is getting closer. We shall soon hear the guns, and then surely the civilian population will be evacuated. They worry less we join the Partisans. As far as I'm concerned, the whole business of deportation is nothing but a big farce. They'll laugh. They just want to steal our valuables and jewelry. They know that it's all been buried and they'll have to dig to find it. So much easier to do when the owners are on vacation. <laughs> on vacation. This kind of talk that nobody believed helped pass the time. The few days we spent here went by pleasantly enough in relative calm. People rather got along. There no longer was any distinction between rich and poor, notables and the others. 
we were all people condemned to the same fate, still unknown. Saturday, the day of rest, was the day chosen for our expulsion. The night before, we had sat down to the traditional Friday night meal. We had said the customary blessings over the bread and the wine and swallowed the food in silence. We sensed that we were gathered around the familial table for the last time. I spent that night going over memories and ideas and was unable to fall asleep. On, we were in the street ready to leave. This time, there were no Hungarian police. It had been argued that the Jewish council would handle everything by itself. The convoy headed towards the maid synagogue. The town seemed deserted, but behind the shutters, our friends of yesterday were probably waiting for the moment when they could loot our homes. The synagogue resembled a large railroad station, baggage and tears. The altar was shattered, the wall covering shredded, the walls themselves bare. There were so many of us, we could hardly breathe. The 24 hours we spent there were horrendous. The men were downstairs, the women upstairs. It was Saturday, the Sabbath, and it was as though we were there to attend services. Forbidden to go outside, people relieved themselves in a corner. Next morning, we walked towards the station where a convoy of cattle cars was waiting. The Hungarian police made us climb into the cars, 80 persons in each one. They handed us some bread, a few pails of water. They checked the bars on the windows to make sure they would not come loose. The cars were sealed. One person was placed in charge of every car. If someone managed to escape, that person would be shot. Two Gestapo officers strolled down the length of the platform. They were all smiles, all things considered. It had gone very smoothly. A prolonged whistle pierced the air. The wheels began to grind. We were on our way. Chapter 2 Lying down was not an option, nor could we all sit down. We decided to take turns sitting. There was little air, and the lucky ones found themselves near a window. They could watch the blooming countryside flip by. After two days of travel, thirst became intolerable, as did the heat. Freed of normal constraints, some of the young let go of their inhibitions and, under the cover of darkness, caressed one another without any thought of others alone in the world. The others pretended not to notice. There was still some food left, but we never ate enough to satisfy our hunger. Our principle was to economize, to save for tomorrow. Tomorrow could be worse yet. The train stopped in Kashau a small town on the Czechoslovakian border. We realized then that we were not staying in Hungary. Our eyes opened. Too late. The door of the car slid aside. A German officer stepped in, accompanied by a Hungarian lieutenant, acting as his interpreter. From this moment on, you are under the authority of the German army. Anyone who still owns gold, silver, or watches must hand them over now. Anyone who will be found to have kept any of these will be shot on the spot. Secondly, anyone who is ill should report to the hospital car. That's all. Hungarian lieutenant went around with a basket and retrieved the last possessions from those who chose not to go on, tasting the bitterness of fear. There are 80 of you in the car, 
the German officer added. If anyone goes missing, you will all be shot. Like dogs. The two disappeared. The doors clanked shut. We had fallen into the trap up to our necks. The doors were nailed. The way back irrevocably cut off. The world had become a hermetically sealed cattle car. There was a woman among us, a certain Mrs. Schachter. She was in her 50s and her 10-year-old son was with her, crouched in a corner. Her husband and two older sons had been deported with the first transport by mistake. The separation had totally shattered her. I knew her well, a quiet, tense woman with piercing eyes. She'd been a frequent guest in our house. Her husband was a pious man who spent most of his days and nights in the house of study. It was she who supported the family. Mrs. Schachter had lost her mind. First day of the journey, she had already begun to moan. She kept asking why she had been separated from her family. Later, her sobs and screams became hysterical. On the third night, as we were sleeping, some of us sitting huddled against each other, some of us standing, a piercing cry broke the silence. Fire! I see a fire! I see a fire! There was a moment of panic. Who had screamed? It was Mrs. Schachter. Standing in the middle of the car, in the faint light filtering through the windows, she looked like a withered tree in a field of wheat. She was howling, pointing through the window. Look! Look at this fire! This terrible fire! Have mercy on me! Some pressed against the bars to see. There was nothing. Only the darkness of night. It's a long time to recover from this harsh awakening. We were still trembling, and with every screech of the wheels, we felt the abyss opening beneath us. Unable to still our anguish, we tried to reassure each other. She's mad. Poor woman. Someone had placed a damp rag on her forehead, but she nevertheless continued to scream. Fire! I see a fire! Her little boy was crying, clinging to her skirt, trying to hold her hand. It, it's nothing, mother. There's nothing there. Please sit down. He pained me even more than did his mother's cries. Some of the women tried to calm her. You, you'll see. You'll find your husbands and son again in, in a few days. She continued to scream and sob fitfully. Jews, listen to me, she cried. I see a fire. I see flames, huge flames. As though she were possessed by some evil spirit. Tried to reason with her, more to calm ourselves, to catch our breath than to soothe her. She's hallucinating because she's thirsty, poor woman. That's why she speaks of flames devouring her. But it was all in vain. Our terror could no longer be contained. Our nerves had reached a breaking point. Our very skin was aching. It was as though madness had infected all of us. We gave up. A few young men forced her to sit down, then bound and gagged her. Silence fell again. The small boy sat next to his mother, crying. I started to breathe normally again as I listened to the rhythmic pounding of the wheels on the tracks as the train raced through the night. We could begin to doze again, to rest, to dream. And so an hour or two passed. <clears throat> Another scream jolted us. The woman had broken free of her bonds and was shouting louder than before. Look at the fire! Look at the flames! Flames everywhere! Once again, the young men bound and gagged her. When they actually struck her, people shouted their approval. 
Keep her quiet. Make that mad woman shut up. She's not the only one here. She received several blows to the head, blows that could have been lethal. Her son was clinging desperately to her, not uttering a word. He was no longer crying. The night seemed endless. Daybreak, Mrs. Schachter had settled down. Crouching in her corner, her blank gaze fixed on some faraway place. She no longer saw us. She remained like that all day, mute, absent, alone in the midst of us. Toward the evening, she began to shout again. The fire! Oh, over there! She was pointing somewhere in the distance, always the same place. No one felt like beating her anymore. The heat, the thirst, the stench, the lack of air were suffocating us. Yet all that was nothing compared to her screams, which tore us apart. A few more days and all of us would have started to scream. But we were pulling into a station. Some near a widow read to us, Auschwitz. Nobody had ever heard that name. The train did not move again. Afternoon went by slowly. Then the doors of the wagon slid open. Two men, two men were given permission to fetch water. When they came back, they told us that they had learned in exchange for a gold watch that this was the final destination. We were to leave the train here. There was a labor camp on the site. The conditions were good. Families would not be separated. Only the young would work in the factories. The old and the sick would find work in the fields. Confidence soared. Suddenly, we felt free of the previous night's terror. We gave thanks to God. Mrs. Schachter remained huddled in her corner, mute, untouched by the optimism around her. Her little one was stroking her hand. Dusk began to fill the wagon. We ate what was left of our food. At 10 o'clock in the evening, we were all trying to find a position for a quick nap, and soon we were dozing. Suddenly, look at the fire! Look at the flames! Over there! With a start, we awoke and rushed to the window yet again. We had believed her if only for an instant, but there was nothing outside but darkness. We returned to our places, shame in our souls, but fear gnawing at us nevertheless. As she went on howling, she was struck again. Only with great difficulty did we succeed in quieting her down. And in charge of our wagon called out to a German officer strolling down the platform, asking him to have the sick woman move to a hospital car. Patience, the German replied. Patience. She'll be taken there soon. Around 11 o'clock, the train began to move again. We pressed against the windows. The convoy was ro ro rolling slowly. A quarter of an hour later, it began to slow down even more. Through the windows, we saw barbed wire. We understood that this was the camp. We'd forgotten Mrs. Schachter's existence. And suddenly, there was a terrible scream. Choose! Look, look, look at the fire. Look at the flames. And as the train stopped, this time we saw flames rising from a tall chimney into a black sky. Mrs. Schachter had fallen silent on her own, mute again, indifferent, absent. She had returned to her corner. We stared at the flames in the darkness. A wretched stench floated in the air. Abruptly, our doors opened. Strange-looking creatures, dressed in striped jackets and black pants, jumped into the wagon. Holding flashlights and sticks, they began to strike at us left and right, shouting, Everybody out! Leave everything inside! Hurry up! 
We jumped out. I glanced at Mr. Schachter. Her little boy was still holding her hand. In front of us, those flames. In the air, the smell of burning flesh. It must have been around midnight. We had arrived in Birkenau. Chapter 3 The beloved objects that we had carried with us from place to place were now left behind in the wagon and, with them, finally, our illusions. Every few yards there stood an SS man, his machine gun trained on us. Hand in hand, we followed the throng. An SS came towards us wielding a club. He commanded, Men to the left, women to the right. Eight words spoken quietly, indifferently, without emotion. Eight simple, short words, yet that was the moment when I left my mother. There was no time to think, and I already felt my father's hand pressed against mine. We were alone. In a fraction of a second, I could see my mother, my sisters, move to the right. Sapora was holding mother's hand. I saw them walking farther and farther away. Mother was stroking my sister's blonde hair as if to protect her. And I walked on with my father, with the men. I didn't know that this was the moment in time and the place where I was leaving my mother in Sephora forever. I kept walking, my father holding my hand. Behind me, an old man fell to the ground. Nearby, an SS man replaced his revolver in its holster. My hand tightened its grip on my father. All I could think of was not to lose him, not to remain alone. The SS officers gave the order. Form ranks of fives. There was a tumult. It was imperative to stay together. Hey, kid, how old are you? The man interrogating me was an inmate. I could not see his face, but his voice was wary and warm. Fifteen? No, you're eighteen. But I'm not, I said. I'm fifteen. Fool, listen to what I say. And then he asked my father, who answered, I'm fifty. No. The man now sounded angry. Not 50, you're 40. Do you hear? 18 and 40. He disappeared into the darkness. Another inmate appeared, unleashing a stream of invectives. Sons of bitches, why have you come here? Tell me, why? Someone dared to reply. What do you think? That we came here of our own free will? That we asked to come here? The other seemed ready to kill him. Shut up, you moron, or I'll tear you to pieces. You should have hanged yourself rather than come here. Didn't you know what was in store for you here in Auschwitz? You didn't know? In 1944? True. We didn't know. Nobody had told us. He couldn't believe his ears. His tone became even harsher. Over there? Do you see the chimney over there? Do you see it? And the flames? Do you see them? Yes, we saw the flames. Over there, that's where they will take you. Over there will be your grave. You still don't understand, you sons of bitches. Don't you understand anything? You will be burned, burned to a cinder, turned into ashes. His anger changed to fury. We stood stunned, petrified. Could this just be a nightmare, an unimaginable nightmare? I heard whispers around me. We, we must do something. We can't let them kill us like that, like cattle in the slaughterhouse. We must revolt. There were among us a few tough young men. They actually had knives and were urging us to attack the armed, the armed guards. 
One of them was muttering, let the world learn about the existence of Auschwitz. Let everybody find out about it while they still have a chance to escape. But the older men begged their sons not to be foolish. We mustn't give up hope, even now as the sword hangs over our heads. So taught our sages. The wind of revolt died down. We continued to walk until we came to a crossroads. Standing in the middle of it was, though I didn't know it then, Dr. Mangala, the notorious Dr. Mangala. He looked like the typical SS officer, a cruel, though not unintelligent face, complete with monocle. He was holding a conductor's baton and was surrounded by officers. The baton was moving constantly, sometimes to the right, sometimes to the left. In no time, I stood before him. Your age? He asked, perhaps trying to sound paternal. Uh, I'm 18. My voice was trembling. In good health? Yes. Your profession? Tell him that I was a student? A farmer? I heard myself saying. This conversation lasted no more than a few seconds. It seemed like an eternity. The baton pointed to the left. I took a half step forward. I first wanted to see where they would send my father. Were he to have gone to the right, I would have run after him. The baton once more moved to the left, a weight lifted from my heart. We did not know as yet which was the better side, right or left, which road led to prison and which to the crematoria. Still, I was happy. I was near my father. Our procession continued slowly to move forward. Another inmate came over to us. Satisfied? Yes, someone answered. <laughs> you poor devils. You are headed for the crematorium. He seemed to be telling the truth. Not far from us, flames, huge flames rising from a ditch. Something was being burned there. A truck drew close and unloaded its hold. Small children. Babies. Yes, I did see this with my own eyes. Children thrown into the flames. Is it any wonder that ever since then, sleep tends to elude me? So that was where we were going. A little farther on, there was, there was another larger, larger pit for adults. I pinched myself. Was I still alive? Was I awake? How was it possible that men, women, and children were being burned and that the world kept silent? No, all this could not be real. A nightmare, perhaps. Soon, I would wake up with a start, my heart pounding, and find that I was back in the room of my childhood, with my books. My father's voice tore me from my daydreams. What a shame. A shame that you did not go with your mother. I saw many children your age go with their mothers. His voice was terribly sad. I understood that he did not wish to see what they would do to me. He did not wish to see his only son go up in flames. My forehead was covered with cold sweat. And still, I told him that I could not believe that human beings were being burned in our times. The world would never tolerate such crimes. The world? The world is not interested in us. Today, everything is possible even the crematoria. His voice broke. Father, I said, if, if that is true, then I don't want to wait. I'll run into the electrified barbed wire. That would be easier than a slow death in the flames. 
He didn't answer. He was weeping. His body was shaking. Everybody around us was weeping. Someone began to recite Kaddish, the prayer for the dead. I don't know whether during the history of the Jewish people, men have ever, men have ever before recited Kaddish for themselves. May his name be celebrated and sanctified, whispered my father. For the first time, I felt anger rising within me. Why should I sanctify his name? The Almighty, the eternal and terrible master of the universe, chose to be silent. What was there to thank him for? We continued our march. We were coming closer and closer to the pit from which an ephemeral heat was rising. Twenty more steps. If I was going to kill myself, this was the time. Our column had only some fifteen steps to go. I bit my lips so that my father would not hear my teeth chattering. Ten more steps. Eight. Seven. We were walking slowly as one follows a hearse, our own funeral procession. Only four more steps. Three. There it was now, very close to us, the pit and its flames. I gathered all that remained of my strength in order to break rank and throw myself onto the barbed wire. Deep down, I was saying goodbye to my father, to the whole universe, and against my will, I found myself whispering the words, May his name be exalted and sanctified. My heart was about to burst. There, I was face to face with the angel of death. No. Two steps from the pit, we were ordered to turn left and herded into barracks. I squeezed my father's hand, and he said, Do you remember Mrs. Schachter in the train? Never shall I forget that night, the first night in camp that turned my life into one long night seven times sealed. Never shall I forget that smoke. Never shall I forget the small faces of the children whose bodies I saw transformed into smoke under a silent sky. Never shall I forget those flames that consumed my faith forever. Never shall I forget the nocturnal silence that deprived me of all eternity of the desire to live. Never shall I forget those moments that murdered my God and my soul and turned my dreams to ashes. Never shall I forget those things, even were I condemned to live as long as God himself. Never. The barrack we had been assigned to was very long. On the roof, a few bluish skylights. I thought, this is what the antechamber of hell must look like. So many crazed men. So much shouting. So much brutality. Dozens of inmates were there to receive us. Sticks in hand, striking anywhere and anyone without reason. The orders came. Strip, hurry up, rouse. Hold only on to your belts and to your shoes. Our clothes were to be thrown on the floor at the back of the barrack. There was a pile there already. New suits, old one, torn overcoats, rags. For us, it meant true equality, nakedness. We trembled in the cold. A few SS officers wandered through the room looking for strong men. If vigor was that appreciated, perhaps one should try to appear sturdy. My father thought the opposite, better not to draw attention. We later found out that he had been right. Those who were selected that day were incorporated into the Sonder Commando, the commando working in the crematoria. Bella Katz, the son of an important merchant of my town, had arrived in Birkenau with the first transport one week ahead of us. When he found out that we were there, he succeeded in slipping us a note. He told us that having been chosen because of his strength, he had been forced to place his own father's body 
into the furnace. The blows continued to rain on us. To the barber! Belt and shoes in hand, I let myself be dragged along to the barber's. Their clippers tore out our hair, shaved every hair on our bodies. My head was buzzing, the same thoughts surfacing over and over, not to be separated from my father. Freed from the barber's clutches, we began to wander about the crowd, finding friends, acquaintances. Every encounter filled us with joy. Yes, joy. Thank God, you are still alive. Some were crying. They used whatever strength they had left to cry. Why had they let themselves be brought here? Why didn't they die in their beds? Their words were inter interspersed with sobs. Suddenly, someone threw his arms around me in a hug. Yahel, the Sihater's Reb's brother. He was weeping bitterly. I thought he was crying with joy at still being alive. Don't cry, Yahel, I said. Don't, don't waste your tears. Not cry. We are on the threshold of death. Soon, we shall be inside. Do you understand? Inside. How could I not cry? I watched darkness fade through the bluish skylights in the roof. I no longer was afraid. I was overcome by fatigue. The absent no longer entered our thoughts. One spoke of them. Who knows what happened to them, but their fate was not on our minds. We were incapable of thinking. Our senses were numbed. Everything was fading into a fog. We no longer clung to anything. The instincts of self-preservation, of self-defense, of pride had all deserted us. In one terrifying moment of lucidity, I thought of us as damned souls wandering through the void. Souls condemned to wander through space until the end of time, seeking redemption, seeking oblivion, without any hope of finding either. Around five o'clock in the morning, we were expelled from the barrack. The capos were beating us again, but I no longer felt the pain. A glacial wind was enveloping us. We were naked, holding our shoes and belts. In order. Run. And we ran. After a few minutes of running, a new barrack. A barrel of foul-smelling liquid stood by the door. Disinfection. Everybody soaked in it. Then came a hot shower, all very fast. As we left the showers, we were chased outside in order to run some more. Another barrack, the storeroom, very long tables, mountains of prison garb. As we ran, they threw the clothes at us, pants, jackets, shirts. In a few seconds, we had ceased to be men. Had the situation not been so tragic, we might have laughed. We looked pretty strange. Meyer Katz, a colossus, wore a child's pants, and Stern, a skinny little fellow, was floundering in a huge jacket. We immediately started to switch. I glanced over at my father. How changed he looked. His eyes were veiled. I wanted to tell him something, but I didn't know what. The night had passed completely. The morning star shone in the sky. I, too, had become a different person. The student of Talmud, the child I was, had been consumed by the flames. All that was left was a shape that resembled me. My soul had been invaded and devoured by a black flame. So many events had taken place in just a few hours that I had completely lost all notion of time. When had we left our homes? And the ghetto? And the train? Only a week ago? One night? One single night? How long had we been standing in the freezing wind? One hour? 
a single hour, 60 minutes, surely it was a dream. Not far from us, prisoners were at work. Some were digging holes, others were carrying sand. None as much as glanced at us. We were withered trees in the heart of the desert. Behind me, people were talking. I had no desire to listen to what they were saying or to know who was speaking and what about. Nobody dared raise his voice even though there was no guard around. We whispered, perhaps because of the thick smoke that poisoned the air and stung the throat. We were herded into yet another barrack inside the gypsy camp. We fell into ranks of five. And now, stop moving. There was no floor, a roof and four walls. Our feet sank into the mud. Again, the waiting. I fell asleep standing up. I dreamed of a bed, of my mother's hand on my face. I woke. I was standing, my feet in the mud. Some people collapsed, sliding into the mud. Others shouted, Are you crazy? We were told to stand. Do you want us all to get in trouble? As if all the troubles in the world were not already upon us. Little by little, we all sat down in the mud, but we had to get up whenever a capo came in to check if, by chance, somebody had a new pair of shoes. If so, we had to hand them over. No use protesting. The blows multiplied, and in the end, one still had to hand them over. I had new shoes myself, but as if as they were covered with a thick coat of mud, they had not been noticed. I thanked God in an improvised prayer for having created mud in his infinite and wondrous universe. Suddenly, the silence became more oppressive. An SS officer had come in and, with him, the smell of the angel of death. We stared at his fleshy lips. He harangued us from the center of the barrack. You are in a concentration camp. In Auschwitz. A pause. He was observing the effect his words had produced. His face remains in my memory to this day. A tall man in his thirties, crime written all over his forehead in his gaze. He looked at us as one would a pack of leprous dogs clinging to life. Remember, he went on. Remember it always. Let it be graven in your memories. You are in Auschwitz, and Auschwitz is not a convalescent home. It is a concentration camp. Here you must work, and if you don't, you will go straight to the chimney, to the crematorium. Work or crematorium, the choice is yours. We'd already lived through a lot that night. We thought that nothing could frighten us anymore, but his harsh words sent shivers through us. The word chimney here was not an abstraction. It floated in the air, mingled with the smoke. It was, perhaps, the only word that had a real meaning in this place. He left the barrack, and the capos arrived, shouting, All specialists, locksmiths, carpenters, electricians, watchmakers, one step forward. The rest of us were transferred to yet another barrack, this one of stone. We had permission to sit down. A gypsy inmate was in charge. My father suddenly had a colic attack. He got up and asked politely in German, Excuse me, could you tell me where the toilets are located? The gypsy stared at him for a long time from head to toe, as if he wished to ascertain that the person addressing him was actually a creature of flesh and bone, a human being with a body and a belly. Then, as if waking from a deep sleep, he slapped my father with such force that he fell down and then crawled back to his place on all fours. 
I stood petrified. What had happened to me? My father had just been struck in front of me, and I had not even blinked. I had watched and kept silent. Only yesterday I would have dug my nails into this criminal's flesh. Had I changed that much, so fast? Remorse began to gnaw at me. All I could think was, I shall never forgive them for this. My father must have guessed my thoughts because he whispered in my ear, it, it doesn't hurt. His cheeks still bore the red mark of his hand. Everybody outside. A dozen or so gypsies had come to join our guard. The clubs and whips were cracking around me. My feet were running on their own. I tried to protect myself from the blows by hiding behind others. It was spring. The sun was shining. Fall in, five by five. The prisoners I had glimpsed that morning were working nearby. No guard in sight, only the chimney's shadow. Lulled by the sunshine in my dreams, I felt someone pulling at my sleeve. It was my father. Come on, son. We marched. Gates opened and closed. We continued to march between the barbed wire. At every step, white signs with black skulls looked down on us. The inscription? Warning. Danger of death. What irony. Was there here a single place where one was not in danger of death? The gypsies had stopped next to a barrack. They were replaced by SS men who encircled us with machine guns and police dogs. The march had lasted half an hour. Looking around me, I noticed that the barbed wire was behind us. We had left the camp. It was a beautiful day in May. The fragrances of spring were in the air, and the sun was setting. But no sooner had we taken a few more steps than we saw the barbed wire of another camp. This one had an iron gate with the overhead inscription, Arbeit mach frei. Work makes you free. Auschwitz. First impression, better than Birkenau. Cement buildings with two stories rather than wooden barracks. Little gardens here and there. We were led towards one of those blocks. Seated on the ground by the entrance, we began to wait again. From time to time, somebody was allowed to go in. These were the showers, a compulsory routine. Going from one camp to the other several times a day, we had each time to go through them. After the hot shower, we stood shivering in the darkness. Our clothes had been left behind. We had been, we had been promised other clothes. Around midnight, we were told to run. Faster, yelled our guards. The faster you run, the faster you'll get to go to sleep. After a few minutes of racing madly, we came to a new block. The man in charge was waiting. He was a young Pole who was smiling at us. He began to talk to us, and despite our wariness, we listened attentively. Comrades, you are now in the concentration camp Auschwitz. Ahead of you lies a long road paved with suffering. Don't lose hope. You have already eluded the worst danger, the selection. Therefore, muster your strength and keep your faith. We shall all see the day of liberation. Have faith in life, a thousand times faith. By driving out despair, you will move away from death. Hell does not last forever. And now, here is a prayer, or rather a piece of advice. Let there be camaraderie among you. We are all brothers and share the same fate. The same smoke hovers over all of our heads. Help each other. That is the only way to survive. And now, enough said. You are tired. Listen, you are in block 17. I am responsible for keeping order here. Anyone with a complaint may come to see me. That is all. Go to sleep. Two people to a bunk. Good night.
Those were the first human words. No sooner had we climbed into our bunks than we fell into a deep sleep. The next morning, the veteran inmates treated us without brutality. We went to wash. We were given new clothing. They brought us black coffee. We left the block around 10 o'clock so it could be cleaned. Outside, the sun warmed us. Our morale was much improved. A good night's sleep had done its work. Friends met, exchanged a few sentences. We spoke of everything without ever mentioning those who had disappeared. The prevailing opinion was that the war was about to end. At about noon, we were brought some soup, one bowl of thick soup for each of us. I was terribly hungry, yet I refused to touch it. I was still the spoiled child of long ago. My father swallowed my ration. We then had a short nap in the shade of the block. That SS officer in the muddy barrack must have been lying. Auschwitz was, after all, a convalescent home. In the afternoon, they made us line up. Three prisoners brought a table and some medical instruments. We were told to roll up our left sleeves and file past the table. The three veteran prisoners, needles in hand, tattooed numbers on our left arms. I became A7713. From then on, I had no other name. At dusk, a roll call. The work commandos had returned. The orchestra played military marches near the camp entrance. Tens of thousands of inmates stood in rows while the SS checked their numbers. After the roll call, the prisoners from all the blocks dispersed, looking for friends, relatives, or neighbors among the arrivals of our latest convoy. Days went by. In the mornings, black coffee. At midday, soup. By the third day, I was eagerly eating any kind of soup. At six o'clock in the afternoon, roll call, followed by bread with something. At nine o'clock, bedtime. We'd already been in Auschwitz for eight days. It was after roll call. We stood waiting for the bell announcing its end. And suddenly I, I noticed someone passing between the rows. I heard him ask, Who among you is Vaisel from Saihei? The person looking for us was a small fellow with spectacles and a wizened face. My father answered, That's me, Vaisel from Saihei. The fellow's eyes narrowed. He took a long look at my father. You don't know me? You don't recognize me? I, I, I'm your relative. Stein, from, from Antwerp? Rizel's husband. Your wife was Rizel's aunt. She, she often wrote to us in, in such letters. My father had not recognized him. He must have barely known him, always being up to his neck in communal affairs and not knowledgeable in family matters. He was always elsewhere, lost in thought. Once, a cousin came to see us in Saihei. She'd stayed at our house and eaten at our table for two weeks before my father noticed her presence for the first time. No, he did not remember Stein. I recognized him right away. I had known Rizel, his wife, before she had left for Belgium. He told us that he had been deported in 1942. He said, I heard people say that a transport had arrived from your region and I came to look for you. I thought you might have some news of Rizel and my two small boys who stayed in Antwerp. I knew nothing about them. Since 1940, my mother had not received a single letter from them. But I lied. Yes, my mother did hear from them. Rizel is fine. So are the children. He was weeping with joy. He would have liked to stay longer, to learn more details, to soak up the good news, but an SS was heading in our direction and he had to go, telling us that he would come back the next day. The bell announced that we were dismissed. We went to fetch the evening meal, bread and margarine. I was terribly hungry and swallowed my ration on the spot. My father told me, You mustn't eat all at once. 
Tomorrow is another day. But seeing that his advice had come too late and that there was nothing left of my ration, he didn't even start his own. Oh, me? I'm not hungry, he said. We remained in Auschwitz for three weeks. We had nothing to do. We slept a lot in the afternoon and at night. Our one goal was to avoid the transports, to stay here as long as possible. It wasn't difficult. It was enough never to sign up as a skilled worker. The unskilled were kept until the end. At the start of the third week, our blackout test was removed. He was judged too humane. The new one was ferocious, and his aides were veritable monsters. The good days were over. We began to wonder whether it wouldn't be better to let ourselves be chosen for the next transport. Stein, our relative from Antwerp, continued to visit us, and from time to time he would bring a half portion of bread. Here, this is for you, Eliza. Every time he came, tears would roll down his icy cheeks. He would often say to my father, Take care of your son. He is very weak, very dehydrated. Take care of yourselves. You must avoid selection. Eat anything, anytime. Eat all you can. The weak don't last very long around here. And he himself was so thin, so withered, so weak. The only thing that keeps me alive, he kept saying, is to know that Rizel and the little ones are still alive. Were it not for them, I would give up. One evening, he came to see us, his face radiant. A, a transport just arrived from Antwerp. I shall go to see them tomorrow. Surely they will have news. He left. We never saw him again. He had been given the news. The real news. Evenings. As we lay on our cots, we sometimes tried to sing a few Hasidic melodies. A kibbutz would break our hearts with his deep, grave voice. Some of the men spoke of God, his mysterious ways, the sins of the Jewish people, and the redemption to come. As for me, I had ceased to pray. I concurred with, I concurred with Job. I was not denying his existence, but I doubted his absolute justice. A kibbutz said, God is testing us. He wants to see whether we are capable of overcoming our base instincts, of killing the Satan within ourselves. We have no right to despair, and if he punishes us mercilessly, it is a sign that he loves us that much more. Hirsch Janud, well versed in Kabbalah, spoke of the end of the world and the coming of the Messiah. From time to time, in the middle of all that talk, a thought crossed my mind. Where is mother right now? In Sapporah? Mother is still a young woman, my father once said. She must be in a labor camp, and Sephora, she's a big girl now. She too must be in a camp. How we would have liked to believe that. We pretended, for what if one of us still did believe? All the skilled workers had already been sent to other camps. Only about a hundred of us simple laborers were left. Today, it's your turn, announced the block secretary. You're leaving with the next transport. At 10 o'clock, we were handed our daily ration of bread. A dozen or so SS surrounded us. At the gate, the sign proclaimed that work meant freedom. We were counted, and there we were, in the countryside, on a sunny road. In the sky, a few small white clouds. We were walking slowly. The guards were in no hurry. We were glad of it. As we were passing through some of the villages, many Germans watched us, showing no surprise. No doubt they had seen quite a few of these processions. On the way, we saw some young German girls, 
The guards began to tease them. The girls giggled. They allowed themselves to be kissed and tickled, bursting with laughter. They all were laughing, joking, and passing love notes to one another. At least, during all that time, we endured neither shouting nor blows. After four hours, we arrived at the new camp, Buna. The iron gate closed behind us. Chapter 4 The camp looked as though it had been through an epidemic, empty and dead. Only a few well-dressed inmates were wandering between the blocks. Of course, we first had to pass through the showers. The head of the camp joined us there. He was a stocky man with big shoulders, the neck of a bull, thick lips, and curly hair. He gave an impression of kindness. From time to time, a smile would linger in his gray-blue eyes. Our convoy included a few 10- and 12-year-olds. The officer took an interest in them and gave orders to bring them food. We were given new clothing and settled into two tents. We were, we were to wait there until we could be incorporated into the work commandos. Then we would be assigned to a block. In the evening, the commandos returned from work yards. Roll call. We began looking for people we knew, asking the veterans which work commandos were the best and which block one should try to enter. All the inmates agreed, Buna is a very good camp. One can hold one's own here. The most important thing is not to be assigned to the construction commando. As if we had a choice. The leader was a German. An assassin's face, fleshy lips, hands resembling a wolf's paws. The camp's food had agreed with him. It could hardly move, he was so fat. Like the head of the camp, he liked children. Immediately after our arrival, he had bread brought for them, some soup and margarine. In fact, this affection was not entirely altruistic. There existed here a veritable traffic of children among homosexuals, I learned later. He told us, You will stay with me for three days in quarantine. Afterward, you will go to work. Tomorrow, medical checkup. One of his aides, a tough-looking boy with shifty eyes, came over to me. Would you like to get into a good commando? Of course, but on one condition. I want to stay with my father. All right, he said. I can arrange it for a pittance. Your shoes. I'll give you another pair. I refused to give him my shoes. They were all I had left. I'll also give you a ration of bread with some margarine. He liked my shoes, and I would not let him have them. Later, they were taken from me anyway, in exchange for nothing that time. Medical checkup took place outside early in the morning before three doctors seated on a bench. The first hardly examined me. He just asked, Are you in good health? Who would have dared to admit the opposite? On the other hand, the dentist seemed more conscientious. He asked me to open my mouth wide. In fact, he was not looking for decay, but for gold teeth. Those who had gold in their mouths were listed by their number. I did have a gold crown. The first three days went by quickly. On the fourth day, as we stood in front of our tents, the capos appeared. Each one began to choose the many liked. You, you, and you. They pointed their fingers the way one might choose cattle or merchandise. We followed our capo, a young man. He made us halt at the door of the first block near the entrance to the camp. This was the orchestra's block. He motioned us inside. We were surprised. 
which had we to do with music. The orchestra was playing a military march, always the same. Dozens of commandos were marching off in step to the workyards. The capos were beating the time. Left, right, left, right. SS officers, pen in hand, recorded the number of men leaving. The orchestra continued to play the same march until the last commando had passed. Then the conductor's baton stopped moving and the orchestra fell silent. The capo yelled, Fall in! We fell into ranks of five with the musicians. We left the camp without music, but in step. We still had the march in our ears. Left, right, left, right. We struck up conversations with our neighbors, the musicians. Almost all of them were Jews. Juliet, a Pole with eyeglasses and a cynical smile and a pale face. Louis, a native of Holland, a well-known violinist. He complained that they would not let him play Beethoven. Jews were not allowed to play German music. Hans, the young man from Berlin, was full of wit. And the foreman was a Pole, Franek, a former student in Warsaw. Juliet explained to me, We work in a warehouse of electrical materials not far from here. The work is neither difficult nor dangerous. Only Idik, the capo, occasionally has fits of madness, and then you'd better stay out of his way. You are lucky, little fellow, said Hans, smiling. You fell into a good commando. Ten minutes later, we stood in front of the warehouse. A German employee, a civilian, the Meister, came to meet us. He paid as much attention to us as would a shopkeeper receiving a delivery of old rags. Our comrades were right. The work was not difficult. Sitting on the ground, we counted volts, bulbs, and various small electrical parts. The capo launched into a lengthy explanation of the importance of this work, warning us that anyone who proved to be lazy would be held accountable. My new comrades reassured me, don't worry, he has to say this because of the meister. There were many Polish civilians here and a few French women as well. The women silently greeted the musicians with their eyes. Franek, the foreman, assigned me to a corner. Don't kill yourself. There's no hurry, but watch out. Don't let an SS catch you. Please, sir, I'd like to be near my father. All right, your father will work here, next to you. We were lucky. Two boys came to join our group. Yossi and Tibi, two brothers from Czechoslovakia whose parents had been exterminated in Birkenau. They lived for each other, body and soul. They quickly became my friends. Having once belonged to a Zionist youth organization, they knew countless Hebrew songs. And so we would sometimes hum melodies evoking the gentle waters of the Jordan River and the majestic sanctity of Jerusalem. We also spoke often about Palestine. Their parents, like mine, had not had the courage to sell everything and emigrate. While there was still time. We decided that if we were allowed to live into liberation, we would not stay another day in Europe. We would board the first ship, the Haifa. Still lost in his Kabbalistic dreams, Akiba Drumer had discovered a verse from the Bible which, translated into numbers, made it possible for him to re predict redemption in the weeks to come. We had left the tents for the music musician's block, and we were now entitled to a blanket, a washbowl, and a bar of soap. The Black Altest was a German Jew. It was good to have a Jew as your leader. His name was Alphonse, a young man with a startlingly wizened face. He was totally devoted to defending his block. And whenever he could, he would organize a cauldron of soup for the young, for the weak, for all those who dreamed more of an extra portion of food than of liberty. 
One day when we had just returned from the warehouse, I was summoned by the block secretary. A7713? That's me. After your meal, you'll go to see the dentist. But I don't have a toothache. After your meal, without fail. I went to the infirmary block. Some 20 prisoners were waiting in line at the entrance. It didn't take long to learn the reason for our summons. Our gold teeth were to be extracted. The dentist, a Jew from Czechoslovakia, had a face not unlike a death mask. When he opened his mouth, one had a ghastly vision of yellow, rotten teeth. Seated in the chair, I asked meekly, What are you going to do, sir? I'll remove your gold crown, that's all, he said, clearly indifferent. I thought of pretending to be sick. Couldn't, couldn't you wait a few days? Sir, I, I don't feel well. I, I have a fever. He wrinkled his brow, thought for a moment, and took my pulse. Eh, all right, son. Come back to see me when you feel better. But don't wait for me to call you. I went back to see him a week later, with the same excuse. I still was not feeling better. He did not seem surprised, and I don't know whether he believed me. Yet he most likely was pleased that I had come back on my own as I had promised. He granted me a further delay. Two days after my visit, the dentist's office was shut down. He had been thrown into prison and was about to be hanged. It appeared that he had been dealing in the prisoner's gold teeth for his own benefit. I felt no pity for him. In fact, I was pleased with what was happening to him. My gold crown was safe. It could be useful to me one day to buy something, some bread, or even time to live. At that moment in time, all that mattered to me was my daily bowl of soup, my crust of stale bread, the bread, the soup. Those were my entire life. I was nothing but a body, perhaps even less, a famished stomach. The stomach alone was measuring time. In the warehouse, I often worked next to a young French woman. We did not speak. She did not know German, and I did not understand French. I thought she looked Jewish, though she passed for Aryan. She was a forced labor inmate. One day, when, when Idik was venting his fury, I happened to cross his path. He threw himself on me like a wild beast, beating me in the chest, on my head, throwing me to the ground and picking me up again, crushing me with ever more violent blows until I was covered in blood. As I bit my lips in order not to howl with pain, he must have mistaken my silence for defiance, and so he continued to hit me harder and harder. Abruptly, he calmed down and sent me back to work as if, as if nothing had happened, as if we had taken part of a game in which both roles were of equal importance. I dragged myself to my corner. I was aching all over. I felt a cool hand wiping the blood from my forehead. It was the French girl. She was smiling, her mournful smile, as she slipped me across the bread. She looked straight into my eyes. I knew she wanted to talk to me, but that she was paralyzed with fear. She remained like that for some time, and then her face lit up and she said, in almost perfect German, Bite your lips, little brother. Don't cry. Keep your anger, your hate, for another day. For later. The day will come, but not now. Wait. Clench your teeth and wait. Many years later, in Paris, I sat in the metro reading my newspaper. Across the aisle, a beautiful woman with dark hair and dreamy eyes. I had seen those eyes before. Madame, don't, don't you recognize me? I don't know you, sir. In 1944, you were in Poland, in Buna, weren't you? Yes, but 
You worked in a depot, a warehouse for electrical parts. Yes, she said, looking troubled. And then, after a moment of silence, wait, I do remember. Idik, the capo, young Jewish boy, your sweet words. We left the metro together and sat down at a cafe terrace. We spent the whole evening reminiscing. Before parting, I said, may I ask one more question? I know what it is. Am I Jewish? Yes, I am. From an observant family. During the occupation, I had false papers and passed as Aryan. And that was how I was assigned to a forced labor unit. When they deported me to Germany, I eluded being sent to a concentration camp. At the depot, nobody knew that I spoke German. It would have aroused suspicion. It was imprudent for me to say those few words to you, but I knew that you would not betray me. Another time, we were loading diesel motors onto freight cars under the supervision of some German soldiers. Eidick was on edge. He had trouble restraining himself. And suddenly he exploded. The victim this time was my father. You old loafer, he started yelling. Is this what you call working? And he began beating him with an iron bar. At first, my father simply doubled over under the blows, but then he seemed to break in two like an old tree struck by lightning. I watched it all happening without moving. I kept silent. In fact, I thought of stealing away in order not to suffer the blows. What's more, if I felt anger at that moment, it was not directed at the capo, but at my father. Why couldn't he have avoided Idik's wrath? That was what life in a concentration camp had made of me. Anik, the foreman, one day noticed the gold crown in my mouth. Have your crown, kid. Answered that I could not because without that crown, I could no longer eat. For what they give you to eat, kid? Found another answer. My crown had been listed in the register during the medical checkup. This could mean trouble for us both. If you don't give me your crown, it will cost you much more. All of a sudden, this pleasant and intelligent young man had changed. Eyes were shining with greed. I told him that I needed to get my father's advice. Go ahead, kid. Ask. But I want the answer by tomorrow. When I mentioned it to my father, he hesitated. After a long silence, he said, No, my son. We cannot do this. Well, he will seek revenge. He won't dare, my son. Unfortunately, Franick knew how to handle this. In my weak spot. Father had never served in the military and could not march in step. But here, whenever we moved from one place to another, it was in step. That presented Frannick with the opportunity to torment him and on a daily basis to thrash him savagely. Left, right. He punched him. Left, right. He slapped him. I decided to give my father lessons in marching in step and keeping time. We began practicing in front of our block. I would command, left, right. My father would try. The inmates made fun of us. Oh, look at the little officer teaching the old man to march. Hey, little general, how many rations of bread does the old man give you for this? But my father did not make sufficient progress, and the blows continued to rain on him. So, you still don't know how to march in step, you old good-for-nothing? This went on for two weeks. It was untenable. We had to give in. That day, Frannick burst into savage laughter. <laughs> I knew it. I knew that I would win, kid. Better late than never. And because you made me wait, it'll also cost you a ration of bread. 
a ration of bread for me and my pals, a famous dentist from Warsaw, to pay him for pulling out your crown. What? My ration of bread so that you can have my crown? Frannick smiled. What would you like? That I break your teeth by smashing your face? That evening in the, in the latrines, the dentist from Warsaw pulled my crown with the help of a rusty spoon. Frannick became pleasant again. From time to time, he even gave me extra soup. But it didn't last long. Two weeks later, all the poles were transferred to another camp. Lost my crown for nothing. Today, a few days before the poles left, I had a novel experience. It was on a Sunday morning. Our commando was not required to work that day. Only Idik would not hear of staying in the camp. We had to go to the depot. This sudden enthusiasm for work astonished us. At the depot, Idik entrusted us to Franek, saying, Do what you like, but do something, or else you'll hear from me. And he disappeared. We didn't know what to do. Tired of huddling on the ground, we each took turns strolling through the warehouse in hopes of finding something, a piece of bread, perhaps that a civilian might have forgotten there. When I reached the back of the building, I heard sounds coming from a small adjoining room. I moved closer and had a glimpse of Idik and a young Polish girl half-naked on a straw mat. Now I understood why Idik refused to leave us in the camp. He moved 100 prisoners so that he could copulate with this girl. It struck me as terribly funny, and I burst out laughing. Idik jumped, turned, and saw me while the girl tried to cover her breasts. I wanted to run away, but my feet were nailed to the floor. Idik grabbed me by the throat. Hissing at me, he threatened. Just you wait, kid. You'll see what it costs you to leave your work. You'll pay for this later. And now, go back to your place. A half hour before the usual time to stop work, the capos assembled our entire commando. Roll call. Nobody understood what was going on. A roll call? At this hour? Here? Only I knew. The capo made a short speech. An ordinary inmate does not have the right to mix into other people's affairs. One of you does not seem to have understood this point. I shall therefore try to make him understand clearly, once and for all. I felt the sweat running down my back. A7713. I stepped forward. A crate, he ordered. They brought a crate. Lie down on it, on your belly. And I obeyed. No longer felt anything except the washes of the lip. One, two, he was counting. It took his time between lashes. Only the first really hurt. I heard him count. Ten, eleven. His voice was calm and reached me as through a thick wall. Twenty-three. Two more, I thought, half, half unconscious. The capo was waiting. Twenty-four. Twenty-five. It was over. I had not realized it, but I had fainted. I came too when they doused me with cold water. I was still lying on the crate. In a blur, I could see the wet ground next to me. Then I heard someone yell. It had to be the capo. I began to distinguish what he was shouting. Stand up! I must have made some movement to get up, but I felt myself fall back on the crate. How I wanted to get up. Stand up! He was yelling even more loudly. If only I could answer him. If only I could tell him that I could not move. But my mouth would not open. 
At Idik's command, two inmates lifted me and led me to him. Look me in the eye. I looked at him without seeing him. I was thinking of my father. He would be suffering more than I. Listen to me, you son of a swine, said Idik coldly. So much for your curiosity. You shall receive five times more if you dare tell anyone what you saw. Understood? I nodded once, ten times, endlessly, as if my head had decided to say yes for all eternity. On Sunday, as half of our group, including my father, was at work, the others, including me, took the opportunity to stay and rest. Around ten o'clock, the sirens started to go off. Alert. The blackout pests gathered us inside the blocks while the SS took refuge in the shelters. As it was relatively easy to escape during alert, the guards left the watchtowers and the electric curtain current and the barbed wire was cut. The standing order to the SS was to shoot anyone found outside his block. In no time, the camp had the look of an abandoned ship. No living souls in the alleys. Next to the kitchen, two cauldrons of hot, steaming soup had been left untended. Two cauldrons of soup. Smack in the middle of the road, two cauldrons of soup with no one to guard them. A royal feast was going to waste. Supreme temptation. Hundreds of eyes were looking at them, shining with desire. Two lambs with hundreds of wolves lying in wait for them. Two lambs without a shepherd, free for the taking. But who would dare? Fear was greater than hunger. Suddenly, we saw the door of Block 37 open slightly. A man appeared, crawling snake-like in the direction of the cauldrons. Hundreds of eyes were watching his every move. Hundreds of men were crawling with him, scraping their bodies with his on the stones. All hearts trembled, but mostly with envy. He was the one who had dared. He reached the first cauldron. Hearts were pounding harder. He had succeeded. Jealousy devoured us, consumed us. We never thought to admire him poor hero committing suicide for a ration or two of, or more of soup. In our minds, he was already dead. Lying on the ground near the cauldron, he was trying to lift himself to the cauldron's rim. Either out of weakness or out of fear, he remained there, undoubtedly to muster his strength. At last, he succeeded in pulling himself up to the rim. For a second, he seemed to be looking at himself in the soup, looking for his ghostly reflection there. Then, for no apparent reason, he let out a terrible scream, a death rattle such as I had never heard before, and with open mouth thrust his head toward the still steaming liquid. We jumped at the sound of the shot. Falling to the ground, his face stained by the soup, the man writhed a few seconds at the base of the cauldron, and then he was still. That was when we began to hear the planes. Almost at the same moment, the barrack began to shake. They're bombing the Buna factory! Someone shouted. I anxiously thought of my father, who was at work, but I was glad, nevertheless, to watch that factory go up in flames. <laughs> what revenge. While we had heard some talk of German military defeats on the various fronts, we were not sure if they were credible. But today, this was real. We were not afraid. And yet, if a bomb had fallen on the blocks, it would have claimed hundreds of inmates' lives. But we no longer feared death. In any event, not this particular death. Every bomb that hit filled us with joy, gave us renewed confidence. The raid lasted more than one hour. If only it could have gone on for ten times ten hours. Then, once more, there was silence. 
the last sound of the American plane dissipated in the wind, and there we were, in our cemetery. On the horizon, we saw a long trail of black smoke. The sirens began to wail again. The end of the alert. Everyone came out of the blocks. We breathed an air filled with fire and smoke, and our eyes shone with hope. A bomb had landed in the middle of the camp near the Appleplatz, the assembly point, but had not exploded. We had to dispose of it outside the camp. The head of the camp, the Lagarletes, accompanied by his aide and by the chief capo, were on an inspection tour of the camp. The raid had left traces of great fear on his face. In the very center of the camp lay the body of the man with soup stains on his face, the only victim. Cauldrons were carried back to the kitchen. The SS were back at their posts in the watchtowers behind their machine guns. Intermission was over. An hour later, we saw the commandos returning, in step as always. Happily, I caught sight of my father. Several buildings were flattened, he said, but the depot was not touched. In the afternoon, we cheerfully went to clear the ruins. One week later, as we returned from work in the middle of the camp, the Appleplatz stood at a black gallows. We learned that soup would be distributed only after roll call, which lasted longer than usual. The orders were given more harshly than on other days, and there were strange vibrations in the air. Caps off, the Lagarletes suddenly shouted, and thousand caps came off at once. Over your heads. Ten thousand caps were back on our heads at lightning speed. The camp gate opened. An SS unit appeared and encircled us. One SS every three paces. The machine guns on the watchtowers were pointed towards the Appleplatz. They're expecting trouble, whispered Juliet. Two SS were, hurt, were headed towards the solitary confinement cell. They came back, the condemned man between them. He was a young boy from Warsaw, an inmate with three years in concentration camps behind him. He was tall and strong, a giant compared to me. His back was to the gallows, his face turned towards his judge, the head of the camp. He was pale but seemed more solemn than frightened. His manacle hands did not tremble. His eyes were coolly assessing the hundreds of SS guards, the thousands of prisoners surrounding him. The Lagarletes began to read the verdict, emphasizing every word. In the name of Reichsführer Himmler, prisoner number, stole during the air raid. According to the law, prisoner number is condemned to death. Let this be a warning and an example to all prisoners. And nobody moved. I heard the pounding of my heart. The thousands of people who died daily in Auschwitz and Birkenau in the crematoria no longer troubled me. But this boy, leaning against his gallows, upset me deeply. Ceremony. Will it be over soon? I'm hungry. Whispered Juliet. The sign of the Lacarletes, the Laga Campo, stepped up to the condemned youth. He was assisted by two prisoners in exchange for two bowls of soup. Apo wanted to blindfold the youth, but he refused. After what seemed like a long moment, the hangman put the rope around his neck. He was about to signal his aides to pull the chair from under the young man's feet when the latter shouted in a strong and calm voice, Long live liberty! My curse on Germany! My curse! My... The executioner had completed his work. Like a sword, the order cut through the air. Caps off! 10,000 prisoners paid their respects. 
cover your heads. Then the entire camp, block after block, filed past the hanged boy and stared at his extinguished eyes, the tongue hanging from his gaping mouth. Apos forced everyone to look him squarely in the face. Afterward, we were given permission to go back to our block and have our meal. I remember that on that evening, the soup tasted better than ever. Watched other hangings. I never saw a single victim weep. These withered bodies had long forgotten the bitter taste of tears. Except once. The Oberkampo of the 52nd Cable Commander was a Dutchman, a giant of a man well over six feet. He had some 700 prisoners under his command, and they all loved him like a brother. Nobody had ever endured a blow or even an insult from him. In his service was a young boy, a pipel, as they were called. This one had a delicate and beautiful face, an incredible sight in this camp. Una, the pipel, were hated. They often displayed greater cruelty than their elders. I once saw one of them, a boy of 13, beat his father for not making his bed properly. As the old man quietly wept, the boy was yelling, If you don't stop crying instantly, I will no longer bring you bread. Understood? But the Dutchman's little servant was beloved by all. His was the face of an angel in distress. One day the power failed at the central electric plant in Buna. The Gestapo, summoned to inspect the damage, concluded that it was sabotage. They found a trail. It led to the block of the Dutch Obercapo, and after a search, they found a significant quantity of weapons. Obercapo was arrested on the spot. He was tortured for weeks on end in vain. He gave no names. He was transferred to Auschwitz and never heard from again. This young Pipel remained behind, in solitary confinement. He too was tortured, but he too remained silent. The SS then condemned him to death, him and two other inmates who had been found to possess arms. One day as we returned from work, we saw three gallows, three black ravens erected on the apple plots. Roll call. The SS surrounding us, machine guns aimed at us, the usual ritual. Three prisoners in chains, and among them, the little pipe, the sad-eyed angel. The SS seemed more preoccupied, more worried than usual. To hang a child in front of thousands of onlookers was not a small matter. The head of the camp read the verdict. All eyes were on the child. He was pale, almost calm, but he was biting his lips as he stood in the shadow of the gallows. This time, the lager capo refused to act as executioner. The SS took his place. Three condemned prisoners together stepped onto the chairs. Eunice and the nooses were placed around their necks. Long live liberty! shouted the two men, but the boy was silent. Where is merciful God? Where is he? Someone behind me was asking. At the signal, the three chairs were tipped over. Total silence in the camp. On the horizon, the sun was setting. Caps off, screamed the legalitest. His voice quivered. As for the rest of us, we were weeping. Cover your heads. Then came the march past the victims. The two men were no longer alive. Their tongues were hanging out, swollen and bluish. The third rope was still moving. The child, too light, was still breathing. So he remained for more than half an hour, lingering between life and death, writhing before our eyes. And we were forced to look at him at close range. He was still alive when I passed him. His tongue 
was still red, his eyes not yet extinguished. Behind me, I heard the same man asking, for God's sakes, where is God? And from within me, I heard a voice answer, where he is? This is where, hanging here from this gallows. At night, the soup tasted of corpses. Chapter 5 The summer was coming to an end. The Jewish year was almost over. On the eve of Rosh Hashanah, the last day of that cursed year, the entire camp was agitated and every one of us felt the tension. After all, this was a day unlike all others. The last day of the year. The word last had an odd ring to it. What if it really were the last day? The evening meal was distributed and especially thick soup, but nobody touched it. We wanted to wait until after prayer. On the apple plots, surrounded by an electric barbed wire, thousands of Jews, anguish on their faces, gathered in silence. Night was falling rapidly, and more and more prisoners kept coming from every block, suddenly able to overcome time and space, to will both into submission. What are you, my God? I thought angrily. How do you compare to this stricken mass gathered to affirm to you their faith, their anger, their defiance? What does your grandeur mean, master of the universe, in the face of all this cowardice, this decay, and this misery? Why do you go on troubling these poor people's wounded minds, their ailing bodies? Some 10,000 men had come to participate in the solemn service, including the Black Altesse, the Capos, all bureaucrats, and the service of death. Blessed be the Almighty. The voice of the officiating inmate had just become audible. At first, I thought it was the wind. Blessed be God's name. Thousands of lips repeated the benediction, bent over like trees in a storm. Blessed be God's name. Why? But why would I bless him? Every fiber in me rebelled. Because he caused thousands of children to burn in his mass graves? Because he kept six crematoria, working day and night, including Sabbath and the holy days? Because in his great might, he created Auschwitz, Birkenau, Buna, and so many other factories of death? How could I say to him, blessed be thou, almighty master of the universe, who chose us among all nations to be tortured day and night? To watch as our fathers, our mothers, our brothers ended up in the furnaces. Praised be thy holy name for having chosen us to be slaughtered on thine altar. I listened as the inmate's voice rose. It was powerful yet broken amid the weeping, the sobbing, the sighing of the entire congregation. All the earth and universe are gods. He kept pausing as though he lacked the strength to uncover the meaning beneath the text. Melody was stifled in his throat. And I, the former mystic, was thinking, yes, man is stronger, greater than God. When Adam and Eve deceived you, you chased them from paradise. When you were displeased by Noah's generation, you brought down the flood. When Sodom lost your favor, you caused the heavens to rain down fire and damnation. But look at these men whom you have betrayed, allowing them to be tortured, slaughtered, gassed, and burned. What do they do? They pray before you. They praise your name. 
of all creation bears witness to the greatness of God. In days gone by, Rosh Hashanah had dominated my life. I knew that my sins grieved the Almighty, and so I pleaded for forgiveness. In those days, I fully believed that the salvation of the world depended on every one of my deeds, on every one of my prayers. Now, I no longer pleaded for anything. I was no longer able to lament. On the contrary, I felt very strong. I was the accuser, God the accused. My eyes had opened and I was alone, terribly alone in a world without God, without man, without love or mercy. I was nothing but ashes now, but I felt myself to be stronger than this Almighty to whom my life had been bound for so long. In the midst of these men assembled for prayer, I felt like an observer, a stranger. Service ended with Kaddish. Each of us recited Kaddish for his parents, for his children, and for himself. We remained standing in the apple plots for a long time, unable to detach ourselves from this surreal moment. Then came the time to go to sleep. Slowly, the inmates returned to their blocks. I thought I heard them wishing each other a happy new year. I ran to look for my father. At the same time, I was afraid of having to wish him a happy year in which I no longer believed. He was leaning against the wall, bent shoulders sagging as if under a heavy load. I went up to him took his hand and kissed it. I felt a tear on my hand. Whose was it? Mine? His? I said nothing. Nor did he. Never before had we understood each other so clearly. The sound of the bell brought us back to reality. We had to go to bed. We came back from very far away. I looked up at my father's face, trying to glimpse a smile or something like it on his stricken face. But there was nothing, not the shadow of an expression. Feet. Am Kippur, the Day of Atonement. Should we fast? The question was hotly debated. To fast could mean a more certain, more rapid death. In this place, we were always fasting. It was Yom Kippur year-round, but there were those who said we should fast precisely because it was dangerous to do so. We needed to show God that even here, locked in hell, we were capable of singing his praises. I did not fast, first of all to please my father who had forbidden me to do so, and then there was no longer any reason for me to fast, and no longer accepted God's silence. As I swallowed my ration of soup, I turned that act into a symbol of rebellion, of protest against him, and I nibbled on my crust of bread. Deep inside me, I felt a great void opening. The SS offered us a beautiful present for the new year. We had just returned from work, and as soon as we passed the camp's entrance, we sensed something out of the ordinary in the air. The roll call was shorter than usual. The evening soup was distributed at great speed, swallowed as quickly. We were anxious. I was no longer in the same block as my father. They had transferred me to another commando, the construction one. With 12 hours a day, I hauled heavy slabs of stone. The head of my new block was a German Jew, small, with piercing eyes. That evening, he announced to us that henceforth no one was allowed to leave the block after the evening soup. A terrible word began to circulate soon thereafter. Selection. We knew what it meant. An SS would examine us, and whenever he found someone extremely frail, a Muslim was what we call those inmates, he would write down his number. 
good for the crematorium. After the soup we gathered between the bunks, the veterans told us, You're lucky to have been brought here so late. Today, this is paradise compared to what the camp was two years ago. Back then, Buna was a veritable hell. No water, no blankets, less soup and bread. At night, we slept almost naked and the temperature was 30 below. We were collecting corpses by the hundreds every day. Work was very hard. Today, this is a little paradise. The Cabos back then had ordered to kill a certain number of prisoners every day. And every week, selection. A merciless selection. Yes, you were lucky. Enough! Be quiet! I begged them. Tell your stories tomorrow or, or some other day. They burst out laughing. They were not veterans for nothing. Are you scared? We too were scared. And at that time, for good reason. The old men stayed in their corner, silent, motionless, hunted down creatures. Some were praying. One more hour, then we would know the verdict, death or reprieve. And my father, I first thought of him now. How would he pass selection? He had aged so much. Blackout test had not been outside a concentration camp since 1933. He had already been through all the slaughterhouses, all the factories of death. Around nine o'clock, he came to stand in our midst. Akhtung! Instant silence. Listen carefully to what I'm about to tell you. For the first time, his voice quivered. In a few moments, selection will take place. You will have to undress completely. Then you will go, one by one, before the SS doctors. I hope you will all pass. But you must try to increase your chances. Before you go into the next room, try to move your limbs. Give yourself some color. Don't walk slowly. Run. Run as if you had the devil at your heels. Don't look at the SS. Run straight in front of you. He paused and then added, and most important, don't be afraid. That was a piece of advice we would have loved to be able to follow. I undressed, leaving my clothes on my cot. Night, there was no danger that they would be stolen. Tibby and Yossi, who had changed commandos at the same time I did, came to urge me, let's stay together. It will make us stronger. Yossi was mumbling something probably was praying. I had never suspected that Yossi was religious. In fact, I'd always believed the opposite. Tibby was silent and very pale. All the block inmates stood naked between the rows of bunks. This must be how one stands for the last judgment. They're coming! Three SS officers surrounded the notorious Dr. Mangala, the very same who had received us in Birkenau. The blackout test attempted a smile. He asked us, you ready? Yes, we were ready. So were the SS doctors. Dr. Mangala was holding a list, our numbers. He nodded to the blockout test. We can begin, as if this were a game. First to go were the notables of the block. The Stubana test, the Kapos, the foremen, all of whom were in perfect physical condition, of course. Then came the ordinary prisoner's turn. Dr. Mangala looked them over from head to toe. From time to time, he noted a number. I had but one thought. Not to have my number taken down and not to show my left arm. In front of me, there were only Tibby and Yossi. They passed. I had time to notice that Mangala had not written down their numbers. Someone pushed me. 
It was my turn. I ran without looking back. My head was spinning. You are too skinny. You are too weak. You are too skinny. You are good for the ovens. The race seemed endless. I felt as though I had been running for years. You are too skinny. You are too weak. At last I arrived. Exhausted, when I had caught my breath, I asked Yossi and Tibby, Did they write me down? No, said Yossi, smiling. He added, Anyway, it couldn't have. You were running too fast. I began to laugh. I was happy. I felt like kissing him. At that moment, the others did not matter. They had not written me down. Those whose numbers had been noted were standing apart, abandoned by the whole world. Some were silently weeping. The SS officers left. The Block test appeared, his face reflecting our collective wariness. It all went well. Don't worry. Nothing will happen to anyone. Not to anyone. He was still trying to smile. A poor, emaciated Jew questioned him anxiously, his voice trembling. But, but sir, they, they did write me down. At that, the Block test vented his anger. What, someone refused to take his word? What is it now? Perhaps you think I'm lying. I'm telling you once and for all, nothing will happen to you. Nothing. You just like to wallow in your despair, you fools. The bell rang, signaling that the selection had ended in the entire camp. With all my strength, I began to race towards Block 36. Midway, I met my father. He came towards me. So, did you pass? Yes, and you? Also, we were able to breathe again. My father, my father had a present for me, a half ration of bread, bartered for something he had found at the depot, a piece of rubber that could be used to repair his shoe. The bell. It was already time to part, to go to bed. The bell regulated everything. It gave me orders, and I executed them blindly. I hated that bell. Whenever I happened to dream of a better world, I imagined a universe without a bell. A few days passed. We were no longer thinking about the selection. We went to work as usual and loaded the heavy stones onto the freight cars. The rations had grown smaller. That was the only change. We had risen at dawn, as we did every day. We had received our black coffee, our ration of bread. We were about to head to the workyard, as always. The Blockhoff tests came running. Have a moment of quiet. I have here a list of numbers. I shall read them to you. All those called will not go to work this morning. They will stay in camp. Softly, he read some numbers. We understood. These were the numbers from the selection. Dr. Mangala had not forgotten. Blockaltes turned to go to his room. As ten prisoners surrounded him, clinging to his clothes. Save us! You promised! We want to go to the depot! We're strong enough to work! We're good workers! We can! We want! We want! They tried to calm them, to reassure them about their fate, to explain to them that staying in the camp did not mean much, had no tragic significance. After all, I stay here every day. The argument was more than flimsy. He realized it and, without another word, locked himself in his room. The bell had just rung. Form ranks. Now it no longer mattered that the work was hard. All that mattered was to be far from the block, far from the crucible of death, from the center of hell. I saw my father running in my direction, 
Suddenly, I was afraid. What's happening? He was out of breath, hardly able to open his mouth. Too. Me too. They told me too to stay in the camp. They had recorded his number without his noticing. What are we going to do? I said anxiously. But it was he who tried to reassure me. It is not certain yet. There's still a chance. Today, they will do another selection. A decisive one. I said nothing. He felt time was running out. He was speaking rapidly. He wanted to tell me so many things. His speech became confused. His voice was choked. He knew that I had to leave in a few moments. He was going to remain alone. So alone. Here, take this knife, he said. I won't need it anymore. You may find it useful. Also, take the spoon. Don't sell it. Quickly, go ahead. Take what I'm giving you. My inheritance. Don't talk like that, father. I was on the verge of breaking into sobs. I don't want you to say such things. Keep the spoon and knife. You will need them as much as I. We'll see each other tonight, after work. He looked at me with his tired eyes, veiled by despair. He insisted. I am asking you. Take it. Do as I ask you, my son. Time is running out. Do as your father asks you. Arcapo shouted the order to march. The commando headed towards the camp gate. Left. Right. I was biting my lips. My father had remained near the block, leaning against the wall. Then he began to run, to try to catch up with us. Perhaps he had forgotten to tell me something. But we were marching too fast. Left. Right. We were at the gate. We were being counted. Around us, the din of military music. And we were outside. All day I plodded around like a sleepwalker. Tibby and Yossi would call out to me from time to time, trying to reassure me, as did the capo who had given me easier tasks that day. I felt sick at heart. How kindly they treated me, like an orphan. I thought, even now my father is helping me. I didn't know whether I wanted the day to go by quickly or not. I was afraid of finding myself alone that evening. How good it would be to die right here. Last, we began the return journey. How I longed for an order to run. The military march, the gate, the camp. I ran towards block 36. Were there still miracles on earth? He was alive. He had passed the second selection. He had still proved his usefulness. I gave him back his knife and spoon. Eba Drumer has left us, a victim of the selection. Lately, he'd been wandering among us, his eyes, his eyes glazed, telling everyone how weak he was. I can't go on. It's over. We tried to raise his spirits, but he wouldn't listen to anything we said. He just kept repeating that it was all over for him, that he could no longer fight. He had no more strength, no more faith. His eyes would suddenly go blank, leaving two gaping wounds, two wells of terror. He was not alone in having lost his faith during those days of selection. I knew a rabbi from a small town in Poland. He was old and bent, his lips constantly trembling. He was always praying in the block, at work, in the ranks. He recited entire pages from the Talmud, arguing with himself, asking and answering himself endless questions. One day he said to me, It's over. God is no longer with us.
and as though he regretted having uttered such words so coldly, so dryly, he added in his broken voice, I know. No one has the right to say things like that. I know that very well. Man is too insignificant, too limited to even try to comprehend God's mysterious ways. But what can someone like myself do? Neither a sage nor a just man. I am not a saint. I'm a simple creature of flesh and bone. I suffer hell in my soul and my flesh. I also have eyes and I see what is being done here. Where is God's mercy? Where is God? How can I believe? How can anyone believe in this God of mercy? Or a Kiba groomer. Only he could have kept his faith in God. If only he could have considered this suffering a divine test, he would not have been swept away by the selection. But as soon as he felt the first chinks in his faith, he lost all incentive to fight and opened the door to death. When the selection came, he was doomed from the start offering his neck to the executioner, as it were. All he asked of us was, In three days I'll be gone. Say Kaddish for me. We promised. In three days, when we would see the smoke rising from the chimney, we would think of him. We would gather ten men and hold a special service. All his friends would say Kaddish. Then he left, in the direction of the hospital. His step was almost steady and he never looked back. An ambulance was waiting to take him to Birkenau. There followed terrible days. We received more blows than food. The work was crushing. And three days after he left, we forgot to say Kaddish. Winter had arrived. The days became short and the nights almost unbearable. From the first hours of dawn, a glacial wind lashed us like a whip. We were, handled, we were handed winter clothing, striped shirts that were a bit heavier. The veterans grabbed the opportunity for further snickering. <laughs> now you'll really get a taste of camp. We went off to work as usual, our bodies frozen. The stones were so cold that touching them, we felt that our hands would remain stuck, but we got used to that too. Christmas and New Year's, we did not work. We were treated to a slightly less transparent soup. In the middle of January, my right foot began to swell from the cold. I could not stand on it. I went to the infirmary. The doctor, a great Jewish doctor, a prisoner like ourselves, was categorical. We have to operate. If we wait, the toes and perhaps the leg will have to be amputated. That was all I needed. I had no choice. The doctor had decided to operate and there could be no discussion. In fact, I was rather glad that the decision had been his put me in a bed with white sheets. I'd forgotten that people slept in sheets. Actually, being in the infirmary was not bad at all. We were entitled to good bread, a thicker soup, no more bell, no more roll call, no more work. From time to time, I was able to send a piece of bread to my father. Next to me lay a Hungarian Jew suffering from dysentery. He was skin and bones. His eyes were dead. I could just hear his voice, the only indication that he was alive. Where did he get their strength to speak? Don't rejoice too soon, son. Here, too, there is selection. In fact, more often than outside, Germany has no need of sick Jews. Germany has no need of me. When the next transport arrives, you'll have a new neighbor. 
Therefore, listen to me. Leave the infirmary before the next selection. These words, coming from the grave as it were, from a faceless shape, filled me with terror. True, the infirmary was very small, and if new patients were to arrive, room would have to be made. But then, perhaps my faceless neighbor, afraid of being among the first displaced, simply wanted to get rid of me, to free my bed, to give himself a chance to survive. Perhaps he only wanted to frighten me. But then again, what if he was telling the truth? I decided to wait and see. The doctor came to tell me that he would operate the next day. Don't be afraid, he said. Everything will be all right. At 10 o'clock in the morning, I was taken to the operating room. The doctor was there. That reassured me. I felt that in his presence, nothing serious could happen to me. Every one of his words was healing, and every glance of his carried a message of hope. It will hurt a little, he said, but it will pass. Be brave. The operation lasted one hour. They did not put me to sleep. I did not take my eyes off my doctor. Then I felt myself sink. When I came to and opened my eyes, I first saw nothing but a huge expanse of white, my sheets. Then I saw my doctor's face above me. Everything went well. You have spunk, my boy. Next, you'll stay here two weeks for some proper rest, and that'll be it. You'll eat well, you'll relax your body and your nerves. All I could do was follow the movements of his lips. I barely understood what he was telling me, but the inflection of his voice soothed me. Suddenly, I broke into a cold sweat. I couldn't feel my leg. Had they amputated it? Doctor, I stammered. Doctor! What is it, son? I didn't have the courage to ask him. Doctor, I'm thirsty. He had water brought to me. He was smiling. He was ready to walk out to see other patients. Doctor. Yes. Will I be able to use my leg? He stopped smiling. I became very frightened. He said, Listen, son, do you trust me? Very much, doctor. Then listen well. In two weeks, you'll be fully recovered. You'll be able to walk like the others. The sole of your foot was full of pus. I just had to open the sack. Your leg was not amputated. You'll see. In two weeks, you'll be walking around like everybody else. All I had to do was wait two weeks. But two days after my operation, rumors swept through the camp that the battlefield had suddenly drawn nearer. The Red Army was racing towards Buna. It was only a matter of hours. We were quite used to this kind of rumor. It wasn't the first time that false prophets announced to us, Peace in the world, the Red Cross negotiating our liberation, and other fables. And often we would believe them. It was like an injection of morphine. Only this time, these prophecies seemed more founded. During the last nights, we heard the cannons in the distance. My faceless neighbor spoke up. Don't be deluded. Hitler has made it clear that we, he will annihilate all Jews before the clock strikes 12. I exploded. What do you care what he said? Would you want us to consider him a prophet? Cold eyes stared at me. At last, he said wearily, I have more faith in Hitler than in anyone else. He alone has kept his promises, all his promises, to the Jewish people.
That afternoon at four o'clock, as usual, the bell called all the blackout tests for their daily report. They came back shattered. They had difficulty opening their mouths. All they could utter was one word. Evacuation. The camp was going to be emptied and we would all be sent to the rear. Where to? Somewhere in deepest Germany. To other camps. There was no shortage of them. When? Tomorrow night. Perhaps the Russians will arrive before... Perhaps. We knew perfectly well they would not. The camp had become a hive of activity. People were running, calling to one another. In every block, the inmates prepared for the journey ahead. I'd forgotten about my lame foot. A doctor came into the room and announced, Tomorrow, right after nightfall, the camp will start on its march, block by block. The sick can remain in the infirmary. They will not be evacuated. That news made us wonder. Were the SS really going to leave hundreds of prisoners behind in the infirmaries, pending the arrival of their liberators? Were they really going to allow Jews to hear the clock strike 12? Of course not. All the patients will be finished off on the spot, said the faceless one, and in one last swoop, thrown into the furnaces. Surely the camp will be mined, said another, right after the evacu evacuation. It will all blow up. As for me, I was thinking not about death, but about not wanting to be separated from my father. We had already suffered so much, endured so much together. This was not the moment to separate. I ran outside to look for him. The snow was piled high, the block's windows veiled in a frost. Holding a shoe in my hand, for I could not put it on my right foot, I ran, feeling neither pain nor cold. What are we going to do? My father didn't answer. What are we going to do? He was lost in thought. The choice was in our hands, for once. We could decide our fate for ourselves. To stay, both of us, in the infirmary where, thanks to my doctor, he could enter as either a patient or a medic. I had made up my mind to accompany my father wherever he went. Well, father, what do we do? He was silent. Let's be evacuated with the others. I said. He didn't answer. He was looking at my foot. You think you'll be able to walk? Yes, I think so. Let's hope we won't regret it, Eliza. After the war, I learned the fate of those who had remained in the infirmary. They were, quite simply, liberated by the Russians two days after the evacuation. I did not return to the infirmary. I went straight to my block. My wound had reopened and was bleeding. The snow under my feet turned red. Bacaltes distributed double rations of bread and margarine for the road. We'd take as much clothing from the store as we wanted. It was cold. We got into our bunks. The last night in Buna. Once more the last night. The last night at home. The last night in the ghetto. The last night in the cattle car. And now, the last night in Buna. How much longer will our lives be lived from one last night to the next? In sleep. Through the frosty window panes, we could see flashes of red. Cannon shots broke the silence of night. How close the Russians were. Between them and us, one night, our last. There was whispering from one bunk to the other. With a little luck, the Russians would be here before the evacuation. Hope was still alive. Someone called out. Try to sleep. 
Gather your strength for the journey. It reminded me of my mother's last recommendations in the ghetto. But I couldn't fall asleep. My foot was on fire. In the morning, the camp did not look the same. The prisoners showed up in all kinds of strange garb. It looked like a masquerade. We'd each put on several garments, one over the other, to better protect ourselves from the cold. Poor clowns, wider than tall, more dead than alive. Poor creatures whose ghostly faces peeked out from layers of prisoners' clothes. Poor clowns. I tried to find a very large shoe. In vain. I tore my blanket and wrapped it around my foot. Then I went to wander off through the camp in search of a little more bread and a few potatoes. Some people said we would be going to Czechoslovakia. No, to Gross Rosen. No, to Glywitz. No, to... Two o'clock in the afternoon. Snow continued to fall heavily. Now the hours were, now the hours were passing quickly. Dusk had fallen. Daylight disappeared into a gray mist. Suddenly, the Black Altes remembered that we had forgotten to clean the block. He commanded four prisoners to mop the floor one hour before leaving camp. Why? For whom? For the Liberating Army, he told us. Let them know that here lived men and not pigs. So we were men, after all. The block was cleaned from top to bottom. Six o'clock, the bell rang. The death knell. The funeral. The procession was beginning its march. Fall in, quickly! In a few moments, we stood in ranks, block by block. Night had fallen. Everything was happening according to plan. The searchlights came on. Hundreds of SS appeared out of the darkness, accompanied by police dogs. The snow continued to fall. The gates of the camp opened. It seemed as though an even darker night was waiting for us on the other side. The first blocks began to march. We waited. We had to await the exodus of the 56 blocks that preceded us. It was very cold. In my pocket, I had two pieces of bread. How I would have liked to have eaten them. But I knew I must not. Not yet. Our turn was coming. Block 53. Block 55. Block 57. Forward. March. It snowed on and on. Chapter 6. An icy wind was blowing violently, but we marched without faltering. The SS made us increase our pace. Faster, you tramps, you flea-ridden dogs. Why not? Moving fast made us a little warmer. The blood flowed more readily in our veins. We had the feeling of being alive. Faster, you filthy dogs. We were no longer marching. We were running, like automatons. The SS were running as well, weapons in hand. We looked as though we were running from them. The night was pitch black. From time to time, a shot exploded in the darkness. They had orders to shoot anyone who could not sustain the pace their fingers on the triggers that did not deprive themselves of the pleasure. If one of us stopped for a second, a quick shot eliminated the filthy dog. I was putting one foot in front of the other like a machine. I was dragging this emaciated body that was still such a weight. If only I could have shed it. Though I tried to put it out of my mind, I couldn't help thinking that there were two of us, my body and I, and I hated that body. I kept repeating to myself, don't think, don't stop. Run. 
Near me, men were collapsing into the dirty snow. Gunshots. A young boy from Poland was marching beside me. His name was Zalman. He had worked in the electrical material depot in Buna. People mocked him because he was forever praying or meditating on some, Talmud, on some Talmudic question. For him, it was an escape from reality, from feeling the blows. All of a sudden, he had terrible stomach cramps. Oh, my stomach aches, he whispered to me. He couldn't go on. He had to stop a moment. I begged him, wait a little, Zaman. Soon we will call all come to a halt. We cannot run like this to the end of the world. But while running, he began to undo his buttons and yelled to me, I, I can't go on. My stomach is bursting. Make an effort, Zalman. Try. I can't go on, he groaned. He lowered his pants and fell to the ground. That is the image I have of him. I don't believe that he was finished off by an SS, for nobody had noticed. He must have died, trampled under the feet of the thousands of men who followed us. I soon forgot him. I began to think of myself again. My foot was aching. I shivered with every step. Just a few more meters and it will be over. I'll fall, a small red flame, a shot. Death enveloped me. It suffocated me. It stuck to me like glue. I felt I could touch it. The idea of dying, of ceasing to be, began to fascinate me. To no longer exist, to no longer feel the excruciating pain of my foot, to no longer feel anything, neither fatigue nor cold, nothing. To break rank, to let myself slide into the side of the road. My father's presence was the only thing that stopped me. He was running next to me, out of breath, out of strength, desperate. I had no right to let myself die. What would he do without me? I was his sole support. These thoughts were going through my mind as I continued to run, not feeling my numb foot, not even realizing that I was still running, that I still owned a body that galloped down the road among thousands of others. When I became conscious of myself again, I tried to slow my pace somewhat, but there was no way. These human waves were rolling forward and would have crushed me like an ant. By now, I moved like a sleepwalker. I sometimes closed my eyes and it was like running while asleep. Now and then someone kicked me violently from behind and I would wake up. The man in back of me was screaming, Run faster! If you don't want to move, let us pass you! But all I had to do was close my eyes to see a whole world pass before me, to dream of another life. The road was endless, to allow oneself to be carried by the mob, to be swept away by blind fate. When the SS retired, they were replaced, but no one replaced us. Chilled to the bone, our throats parched, famished, out of breath, we passed on. We were the masters of nature, the masters of the world. We had transcended everything, death, fatigue, our natural needs. We were stronger than cold and hunger, stronger than the guns and the desire to die, doomed and rootless, nothing but numbers. We were the only men on earth. At last, the morning star appeared in the gray sky. A hesitant light began to hover on the horizon. We were exhausted. We had lost all strength, all illusion. The commandment announced that we had already covered 20 kilometers since we left. Long since, we had exceeded the limits of fatigue. Our legs moved mechanically in spite of us, without us. We came to an abandoned village. Not a living soul. Not a single bark. Houses with gaping windows. A few people slipped out of the ranks, hoping to hide in some abandoned building. One more hour of marching, and at last, 
the order to halt. As one man, we let ourselves sink into the snow. My father shook me. Not here. Get up a little farther down. There's a shed over there. Come. I had neither the desire nor the resolve to get up, yet I obeyed. It was not really a shed, but a brick factory whose roof had fallen in. Its window panes were shattered, its walls covered in soot. It was not easy to get inside. Hundreds of prisoners jostled one another at the door. We finally succeeded in entering. Inside, too, the snow was thick. I let myself slide to the ground. Only now did I feel the full extent of my weakness. The snow seemed to me like a very soft, very warm carpet. I fell asleep. I don't know how long I slept, a few minutes or one hour. When I woke up, a frigid hand was tapping my cheeks. I tried to open my eyes. It was my father. How he had aged since last night. His body was completely twisted, shriveled up into himself. His eyes were glazed over, his lips parched, decayed. Everything about him expressed total exhaustion. His voice was damp from tears and snow. Don't let yourself be overcome by sleep, Eliza. It's dangerous to fall asleep in snow. One falls asleep forever. Come, my son, come, get up. Get up? How could I? How was I to leave this warm blanket? I was hearing my father's words, but their meaning escaped me, as if he had asked me to carry the entire shed on my arms. Come, my son, come! I got up with clenched teeth. Holding on to me with one arm, he led me outside. It was not easy. It was as difficult to go out as to come in. Beneath our feet there lay men, crushed, trampled underfoot, dying. Nobody paid attention to them. We were outside. The icy wind whipped my face. I was constantly biting my lips so that they wouldn't freeze. All around me what appeared to be a dance of death. My head was reeling. I was walking through a cemetery. Among the stiffened corpses there were logs of wood. Not a sound of distress, not a plaintive cry, nothing but mass agony and silence. Nobody asked anyone for help. One died because one had to. No point in making trouble. I saw myself in every stiffened corpse. Soon, I wouldn't even be seeing them anymore. I would be one of them. A matter of hours. Come, father, let's go back to the shed. He didn't answer. He was not even looking at the dead. Come, father, it's, it's better there. You'll be able to lie down. We'll take turns. I'll watch over you, and you'll watch over me. We won't let each other fall asleep. We'll look after each other. He accepted. After trampling over many bodies and corpses, we succeeded in getting inside. We let ourselves fall to the ground. Don't worry, son. Go to sleep. I'll watch over you. You first, father, sleep. He refused. I stretched out and tried to sleep, to doze a little, but in vain. God knows what I would have given to be able to sleep a few moments. But deep inside, I knew that to sleep meant to die, and something in me rebelled against that death death which was settling in all around me, silently, gently. It would seize upon a sleeping person, steal into him and devour him bit by bit. Next to me, someone was trying to awaken his neighbor, his brother, perhaps, or his comrade. In vain. Defeated, he lay down too, next to the corpse, and also fell asleep. Who would wake him up? Reaching out with my arm, I touched him. Wake up! One mustn't fall asleep here! He half opened his eyes. No advice, he said, his voice a whisper. I'm exhausted. Mind your business. Leave me alone.
My father, too, was gently dozing. I couldn't see his eyes. His cap was covering his face. Wake up, I whispered in his ear. He awoke with a start. He sat up, bewildered, stunned like an orphan. He looked all around him, taking it all in as if he had suddenly decided to make an inventory of his universe to determine where he was and how and why he was there. And then he smiled. I shall always remember that smile. What world did it come from? Heavy snow continued to fall over the corpses. The door of the shed opened. An old man appeared. His mustache was covered with ice. His lips were blue. It was Rabbi Elahu, who had headed a small congregation in Poland. A very kind man, beloved by everyone in the camp, even by the capos in the Black Altest. Despite the ordeals and deprivations, his face continued to radiate his innocence. He was the only rabbi whom nobody ever failed to address as Rabbi in Buna. He looked like one of those prophets of old, always in the midst of his people when they needed to be consoled. And strangely, his words never provoked anyone. They did bring peace. As he entered the shed, his eyes, brighter than ever, seemed to be searching for someone. Perhaps someone here has seen my son? He lost his son in the commotion. He had searched for him among the dying to no avail. Then he had dug a hole through the snow to find his body in vain. For three years they had stayed close to one another. Side by side they had endured the suffering, the blows. They had waited for the ration of bread and they prayed. Three years from camp to camp, from selection to selection. And now, when the end seemed near, fate had separated them. When he came near me, Rabbi Elahu whispered, It happened on the road. We lost sight of one another during the journey. I, I fell behind a little at the rear of the column. I, I didn't have the strength to, to run anymore, and my son didn't notice. That's all I know. Where has he disappeared? Where can I find him? Per perhaps you've seen him somewhere. No, Rabbi Elahu, I, I haven't seen him. And so he left as he had come, a shadow swept away by the wind. He had already gone through the door when I remembered that I had noticed his son running beside me. I had forgotten and so had not mentioned it to Rabbi Elahu. But then I remembered something else. His son had seen him losing ground, sliding back to the rear of the column. He had seen him and he had continued to run in front, letting the distance between them become greater. A terrible thought crossed my mind. What if he had wanted to be rid of his father? He had felt his father growing weaker and, believing that the end was near, had thought by his separation to free himself of a burden that could diminish his own chance for survival. It was good that I had forgotten all that, and I was glad that Rabbi Elahu continued to search for his beloved son. And in spite of myself, a prayer formed inside me, a prayer to this God in whom I no longer believed. O oh God, Master of the universe, give me the strength never to do what Rabbi Elahu's son has done. There was shouting outside in the courtyard. Night had fallen and the SS were ordering us to form ranks. We started to march once more. The dead remained in the yard under the snow without even a marker like fallen guards. No one recited Kaddish over them. Sons abandoned the remains of their father without a tear. On the road, it snowed and snowed. It snowed endlessly. 
We were marching more slowly. Even the guards seemed tired. My wounded foot no longer hurt, probably frozen. I felt I had lost that foot. It had become detached from me like a wheel fallen off a car. Never mind. I had to accept the fact. I would have to live with only one leg. The important thing was not to dwell on it, especially now. Leave those thoughts for later. Our column had lost all appearance of discipline. Everyone walked as he wished, as he could. No more gunshots. Our guards surely were tired. But death hardly needed their help. The cold was consciously doing its work. At every step, somebody fell down and ceased to suffer. From time to time, SS officers on motorcycles drove the length of the column to shake off the growing apathy. Hold on, we're almost there. Courage, just a few more hours. We're arriving in Glywitz. These words of encouragement, even coming as they did from the mouths of our assassins, were of great help. Nobody wanted to give up now, just before the end, so close to our destination. Our eyes searched the horizon for the barbed wire of Glywitz. Our only wish was to arrive there quickly. By now it was night. It had stopped snowing. We marched a few more hours before we arrived. We saw the camp only when we stood right in front of its gate. The capos quickly settled us into the barrack. There was shoving and jostling as if this were the ultimate haven, the gateway to life. People trod over numbed bodies, trampled wounded faces. There were no cries, only a few moans. My father and I were thrown to the ground by this rolling tide, and from beneath me came a desperate cry. You're crushing me. Have mercy. The voice was familiar. You're crushing me. Mercy, have mercy. The same faint voice, the same cry I had heard somewhere before. This voice had spoken to me one day. When? Years ago? No, it must have been in the camp. Mercy. Knowing that I was crushing him, preventing him from breathing, I wanted to get up and disengage myself to allow him to breathe, but I myself was crushed under the weight of other bodies. I had difficulty breathing. I dug my nails into unknown faces. I was biting my way through, searching for air. No one cried out. Suddenly, I remembered. Juliak, the boy from Warsaw who played the violin in the Buna Orchestra. Juliak, is that you? Eliza, the 25 whiplashes. Yes, I, I remember. He fell silent. A long moment went by. Juliak, can you hear me? Juliak. Yes, he said feebly. What do you want? He was not dead. Are you all right, Juliak? I asked, less to know his answer than to hear him speak, to know he was alive. All right, Eliza. All right. Not too much air. Tired. My feet are swollen. It's good to rest, but, but my violin. I thought he'd lost his mind. His violin? Here? What about your violin? He was gasping. I, I'm afraid they'll break my violin. I, I brought it with me. I could not answer him. Someone had lain down on top of me, smothering me. I couldn't breathe through my mouth or my nose. Sweat was running down my forehead and my back. And this was it, the end of the road. A silent death, suffocation, no way to scream, to call for help. I tried to rid myself of my invisible assassin. My whole desire to live became concentrated in my nails. I scratched. I fought for a breath of air. 
I tore at decaying flesh that did not respond. I could not free myself of that that mass weighing down my chest. Who knows? Was I struggling with a dead man? I shall never know. All I could say is that I prevailed. I succeeded in digging a hole in that wall of dead and dying people. A small hole through which I could drink a little air. Father, are you there? I asked as I was able to utter a word. I knew that he could not be far from me. Yes, a voice replied from far away as if from another world. I'm trying to sleep. He was trying to sleep. Could one fall asleep here? Wasn't it dangerous to lower one's guard even for a moment when death could strike at any time? Those were my thoughts when I heard the sound of a violin. A violin in a dark barrack where the dead were piled on top of the living. Who was this madman who played the violin here at the edge of his own grave? Or was it a hallucination? It had to be Juliac. He was, a playing, he was playing a fragment of Beethoven concerto. Never before had I heard a such beautiful sound in such silence. How had he succeeded in disengaging himself to slip out from under my body without my feeling it? The darkness enveloped us. All I could hear was the violin, and it was as if Juliac's soul had become his bow. He was playing his life. His whole being was gliding over the strings. His unfulfilled hopes, his charred past, his extinguished future. He played that which he would never play again. I shall never forget, Juliac. How could I forget this concert given before an audience of the dead and dying? Even today, when I hear that particular piece by Beethoven, my eyes close and out of the darkness emerges the pale and melancholy face of my Polish comrade, bidding farewell to an audience of dying men. I don't know how long he played. I was overcome by sleep. When I awoke at daybreak, I saw Juliac facing me, hunched over, dead. Next to him lay his violin, trampled, an eerily poignant little corpse. We stayed in Gleitswitz for three days, days without food or water. We were forbidden to leave the barrack. The door was guarded by the SS. I was hungry and thirsty. I must have been very dirty and disheveled to judge by what the others looked like. The bread we had brought from Buna had been devoured long since, and who knew when we would be given another ration? The front followed us. We could again hear the cannons very close by, but we no longer had the strength or the courage to think that the Germans would run out of time, that the Russians would reach us before we could be evacuated. We learned that we would be moved to the center of Germany. On the third day at dawn, we were driven out of the barrack. We threw blankets over our shoulders like prayer shawls. We were directed to a gate that divided the camp in two. A group of SS officers stood waiting. A word flew through our ranks. Selection. The SS officers were doing the selection, the weak to the left, those who walked well to the right. My father was sent to the left. I ran after him. An SS officer shouted at my back, Come back! I inched my way through the crowd. Several SS men rushed to find me, creating such confusion that a number of people who were able to switch over to the right, among them my father and I, Still, there were gunshots and some dead. We were led out of the camp. After a half-hour march, we arrived in the very middle of a field crossed by railroad tracks. This was, where we were to, this was where we were to wait for the train's arrival. Snow was falling heavily. We were forbidden to sit down or to move. A thick layer of snow was accumulating on our blankets. We were given bread, 
the usual ration. We threw ourselves on it. Someone had the idea of quenching his thirst by eating snow, and soon we were all imitating him. As we were not permitted to bend down, we took out our spoons and ate the snow off of our neighbor's backs, a mouthful of bread and a spoonful of snow. The SS men who were watching were greatly amused by the spectacle. The hours went by. Our eyes were tired from staring at the horizon, waiting for the liberating train to appear. It arrived only very late that evening, an infinitely long train composed of ruthless cattle cars. The SS shoved us inside a hundred per car. We were so skinny. When everyone was on board, the convoy left. Chapter 7 Pressed tightly against one another, in an effort to resist the cold, our heads empty and heavy, our brains a whirlwind of decaying memories, our minds numb with indifference. Here or elsewhere, what did it matter? Die today or tomorrow or later? The night was growing longer, never ending. When at last a grayish light appeared on the horizon, it revealed a tangle of human shapes, heads sunk deeply between the shoulders, crouching, piled one on top of the other like a cemetery covered with snow. In the early dawn light, I tried to distinguish between the living and those who were no more, but there was barely a difference. My gaze remained fixed on someone who, eyes wide open, stared into space. His colorless face was covered with a layer of frost and snow. My father had huddled near me, draped in his blanket, shoulders laden with snow. And what if he were dead as well? I called out to him. No response. I would have screamed if I could have. He was not moving. Suddenly, the evidence overwhelmed me. There was no longer any reason to live, any reason to fight. The train stopped in an empty field. The abrupt halt had wakened a few sleepers. They stood, looking around, startled. Outside, the SS walked by, shouting, Throw out all the dead! Outside, all the corpses! The living were glad. They would have more room. Volunteers began the task. They touched those who had remained on the ground. Hey, here's one. Take him! The volunteers undressed him and eagerly shared his garments. Then two gravediggers grabbed him by the head and feet and threw him from the wagon like a sack of flour. There was shouting all around. Hey, come on, here's another. My neighbor, he's not moving. I woke up from my apathy only when two men approached my father. I threw myself on his body. He was cold. I slapped him. I rubbed his hands, crying, Father, Father, wake up. They're going to throw you outside. His body remained inert. <clears throat> Two gravediggers had grabbed me by the neck. Leave him alone. Can't you see that he's dead? No, I yelled. He's not dead. Not yet. I started to hit him harder and harder. At last, my father half opened his eyes. They were glassy, and he was breathing faintly. You see? I cried. The two men went away. Twenty corpses were thrown from our wagon. Then the train resumed its journey, leaving in its wake in a snowy field in Poland hundreds of naked orphans without a tomb. We received no food. We lived on snow. It took the place of bread. The days resembled the nights, and the nights left in our souls the dregs of their darkness. The train rolled slowly, often halted for a few hours, and continued. It never stopped snowing. We remained lying on the floor for days and nights, one on top of the other, never uttering a word. We were nothing but frozen bodies.
Our eyes closed, we merely waited for the next stop to unload our dead. There followed days and nights of traveling. Occasionally, we would pass through German towns, usually very early in the morning. German laborers were going to work. They would stop and look at us without surprise. One day when we had come to a stop, a worker took a piece of bread out of his bag and threw it into a wagon. There was a stampede. Dozens of starving men fought desperately over a few crumbs. The worker watched the spectacle with great interest. Years later, I witnessed a similar spectacle in Aden. Our ship's passengers amused themselves by throwing coins to the natives who dove to retrieve them. An elegant Parisian lady took great pleasure in this game. When I noticed two children desperately fighting in the water, one trying to strangle the other, I implored the lady, please don't throw any more coins. Why not? said she. I like to give charity. In the wagon where the bread had landed, a battle had ensued. Men were hurling themselves against each other, trampling, tearing at, and mauling each other. Beasts of prey unleashed, animal hate in their eyes. An extraordinary vitality possessed them, sharpening their teeth and nails. A crowd of workmen and curious passerbys had formed all along the train. They had undoubtedly never seen a train with this kind of cargo. Soon, pieces of bread were falling into the wagon from all sides, and the spectators observed these emaciated creatures ready to kill for a crust of bread. A piece fell into our wagon. I decided not to move. Anyway, I knew that I would not be strong enough to fight off the dozens of violent men. I saw, not far from me, an old man dragging himself on all fours. He had just detached himself from the struggling mob. He was holding one hand to his heart. At first, I, I thought he had received a blow to his chest, and then I understood. He was hiding a piece of bread under his shirt. With lightning speed, he pulled it out and put it to his mouth. His eyes lit up. A smile, like a grimace, illuminated his ashen face and was immediately extinguished. A shadow had lain down beside him, and the shadow threw, himself, threw itself over him. Stunned by the blows, the old man was crying, Mir, my little Mir, don't you recognize me? You're killing your father. I have bread. For you too. For you too. He collapsed, but his fist was still clutching a small crust. He wanted to raise it to his mouth, but the other threw himself on him. The old man mumbled something, groaned, and died. Nobody cared. His son searched him, took the crust of bread, and began to devour it. He didn't get far. Two men had been watching him. They jumped him. Others joined in. When they withdrew, there were two dead bodies next to me, the father and the son. I was 16. In our wagon, there was a friend of my father's, Meyer Katz. He'd worked as a gardener in Buna, and from time to time had brought us some green vegetables. Less undernourished than the rest of us, the tension had been easier on him. Because he was stronger than most of us, he had been, in put, he had been put in charge of our wagon. On the third night of our journey, I woke up with a start when I felt two hands on my throat trying to strangle me. I barely had time to call out, Father! Just that one word. I was suffocating, but my father had awakened and grabbed my aggressor. Too weak to overwhelm him, he thought of calling Meyer Katz. Come, come quickly, someone is strangling my son. In a few moments, I was freed. I never did find out why this stranger had wanted to strangle me. But days later, Meyer Katz told my father, Shlomo, 
I'm getting weak. My strength is gone. I won't make it. Don't give in, my father tried to encourage him. You must resist. Don't lose faith in yourself. But Meyer Katz only groaned in response. I can't go on, Shlomo. I can't help it. I can't go on. My father took his arm, and Meyer Katz, the strong one, the sturdy of, sturdiest of us all, began to cry. His son had been taken from him during the first selection, but only now was he crying for him. Only now did he fall apart. He could not go on. He had reached the end. On the last day of our journey, a terrible wind began to blow, and the snow kept falling. We sensed that the end was near, the real end. We could not hold out long in this glacial wind, this storm. Somebody got up and yelled, We must not remain sitting. We shall freeze to death. Let's, let's get up and move. We all got up. We all pulled our soaked blankets tighter around our shoulders, and we tried to take a few steps to shuffle back and forth in place. Suddenly, a cry rose in the wagon, the cry of a wounded animal. Someone had just died. Others close to death imitated his cry, and their cries seemed to come from beyond the grave. Soon, everybody was crying, groaning, moaning, cries of distress hurled into the wind and the snow. The lament spread from wagon to wagon. It was contagious, and now hundreds of cries rose at once. The death rattle of an entire convoy with the end approaching. All boundaries had been crossed. Nobody had any strength left, and the night seemed endless. Meyer Katz was moaning, Why don't they just shoot us now? That same night, we reached our destination. It was late. The guards came to unload us. The dead were left in the wagons. Only those who could stand could leave. Meyer Katz remained on the train. The last day had been the most lethal. We had been a hundred or so in this wagon. Twelve of us left it, among them my father and myself. We had arrived in Buckenwald. Chapter 8 At the entrance to the camp, SS officers were waiting for us. We were counted, then we were directed to the Appleplatz. The orders were given over the loudspeakers. Form ranks of five, groups of one hundred, five steps forward. I tightened my grip on my father's hand. The old familiar fear, not to lose him. Very close to us stood the tall chimney of the crematorium's furnace. It no longer impressed us. It barely drew our attention. A veteran of Buckenwall told us that we would be taking a shower and afterward be sent to different blocks. The idea of a hot shower fascinated me. My father didn't say a word. He was breathing heavily beside me. Father, I said, just another moment. Soon we'll be able to lie down. You'll be able to rest. He didn't answer. I myself was so weary that his silence left me indifferent. My only wish was to take the shower as soon as possible and lie down on a cot. Only it wasn't easy to reach the showers. Hundreds of prisoners crowded the area. The guards seemed unable to restore order. They were lashing out left and right to no avail. Some prisoners who didn't have the strength to jostle or even to stand sat down in the snow. My father wanted to do the same. He was moaning, I can't anymore. It's over. I shall die right here. 
He drags me towards a pile of snow from which protruded human shapes, torn blankets. Leave me, he said. I can't go on anymore. Have pity on me. I'll wait here until we can go into the showers. You'll come and get me. I could have screamed in anger. To have lived and endured so much, was I going to let my father die now? Now that we would be able to take a good hot shower and lie down? Father, I howled. Father, get up right now. You will kill yourself. And I grabbed his arm. He continued to moan. Don't yell, my son. Have pity on your old father. Let me rest here a little, I beg of you. I'm so tired. No more strength. He had become childlike, weak, frightened, vulnerable. Father, I said, you cannot stay here. I pointed to the corpses around him. They too had wanted to rest here. I see, my son, I, I do see them. Let them sleep. They haven't closed an eye for so long. They're exhausted, exhausted. His voice was tender. I howled into the wind. They're dead. They will never wake up, never. Do you understand? And this discussion continued for some time. I knew that I was no longer arguing with him, but with death itself, with death that he had already chosen. The sirens began to wail, alert. The lights went out in the entire camp. The guards chased us towards the blocks, and in a flash, there was no one left outside. We were only too glad not to have to stay outside any longer in the freezing wind. We let ourselves sink into the floor. The cauldrons at the entrance found no takers. There were several tiers of bunks. To sleep was all that mattered. When I woke up, it was daylight. That is when I remembered that I had a father. During the alert, I had followed the mob, not taking care of him. I knew he was running out of strength, close to death, and yet I had abandoned him. I went to look for him. Yet at the same time, a thought crept into my mind. If only I didn't find him. If only I were relieved of this responsibility, I could use all my strength to fight for my own survival, to take care only of myself. Instantly, I felt ashamed, ashamed of myself forever. I walked for hours without finding him. Then I came to a block where they were distributing black coffee. People stood in line and quarreled. A plaintive voice came from behind me. Eliza, my son, bring me a little coffee. I ran towards him. Father, I I've been looking for you for so long. Where were you? Did you sleep? How are you feeling? He seemed to be burning with fever. I fought my way to the coffee cauldron like a wild beast, and I succeeded in bringing back a cup. I took one gulp, and the rest was for him. I shall never forget the gratitude that shone in his eyes when he swallowed this beverage, the gratitude of a wounded animal. With these few mouthfuls of hot water, I had probably given him more satisfaction than during my entire childhood. He was lying on the boards, ashen, his pale lips, his lips pale and dry, shivering. I couldn't stay with him any longer. We had been ordered to go outside to allow for cleaning of the blocks. Only the sick could remain inside. We stayed outside for five hours. We were given soup. When they allowed us to return to the blocks, I rushed towards my father. Did you eat? No. Why? They didn't give us anything. They said that we were sick. 
we would die soon and that it would be a waste of food. I can't go on. I gave him what was left of my soup, but my heart was heavy. I was aware that I was doing it grudgingly. Just like Rabbi Lahu's son, I had not passed the test. Every day my father was getting weaker. His eyes were watery, his face the color of dead leaves. On the third day after we arrived in Buckenwald, everybody had to go to the showers, even the sick who were instructed to go last. When we returned from the showers, we had to wait outside a long time. The cleaning of the blocks had not been completed. From afar, I saw my father and ran to meet him. He went by me like a shadow, passing me without stopping, without a glance. I called to him. He did not turn around. I ran after him. Father, where are you running? He looked at me for a moment, and his gaze was distant, otherworldly, the face of a stranger. It lasted only a moment, and then he ran away. Suffering from dysentery, my father was prostrate on his cot with another five sick inmates nearby. I sat next to him, watching him. I no longer dared to believe that he could still elude death. I did all I could to give him hope. All of a sudden, he sat up and placed his feverish lips against my ear. Eliza, I must tell you where I buried the gold and, and silver in the cellar, you know. And he began talking faster and faster, afraid of running out of time before he could tell me everything. I tried to tell him that it was not over yet, that we would be going home together, but he no longer wanted to listen to me. He could no longer listen to me. He was worn out. Saliva mixed with blood was trickling from his lips. He had closed his eyes. He was gasping more than breathing. For a ration of bread, I was able to exchange cots to be next to my father. When the doctor arrived in the afternoon, I went to tell him that my father was very ill. Bring him here. I explained that he could not stand up, but the doctor would not listen. And so, with great difficulty, I brought my father to him. He stared at him, then asked curtly, What do you want? My father is sick, I answered in his place. Dysentery. It's not my business. I'm a surgeon. Go on, make room for the others. My protests were in vain. I can't go on, my son. Take me back to my bunk. I took him back and helped him lie down. He was shivering. Try to get some sleep, Father. Try to fall asleep. His breathing was labored. His eyes were closed, but I was convinced that he was seeing everything, that he was seeing the truth in all things. Another doctor came to the block. My father refused to get up. He knew that it would be of no use. In fact, that doctor had come only to finish off the patients. I listened to him shouting at them that they were lazy good-for-nothings who only wanted to stay in bed. I considered jumping him, strangling him, but I had neither the courage nor the strength. I was riveted to my father's agony. My hands were aching. I was clenching them so hard. To strangle the doctor and the others. To set the whole world on fire. My father's murderers. But even the cry stuck in my throat. On my return from the bread distribution, I found my father crying like a child. <laughs> my son... They're beating me. Who? I thought he was delirious. Him, the Frenchman, and the Pole. 
They beat me. One more stab to the heart. One more reason to hate. One less reason to live. Eliza, Eliza, tell them not to beat me. I haven't done anything. Why are they beating me? I began to insult his neighbors. They mocked me. I promised them bread, soup. They laughed, and then they got angry. They could not stand my father any longer. They said because he no longer was able to drag himself outside to relieve himself. The following day, he complained that they had taken his ration of bread. While you were asleep? No, I wasn't asleep. They threw themselves on me. They snatched it from me, my bread, and they beat me again. I can't go on, my son. Give me some water. I knew that he must not drink, but he pleaded with me so long that I gave in. Water was the worst poison for him, but what else could I do for him? With or without water, it would be over soon anyway. You, at least, have pity on me. Have pity on him. I, his only son. A week went, a week went, a week went by like that. Is this your father? Asked the block test. Yes. He is very sick. Well, the doctor won't do anything for him. He looked me straight in the eye. The doctor cannot do anything more for him. And neither can you. He placed his big, hairy hand on my shoulder and added, Listen to me, kid. Don't forget that you're in a concentration camp. In this place, it is every man for himself, and you cannot think of others, not even your father. In this place, there is no such thing as father, brother, friend. Each of us lives and dies alone. Let me give you good advice. Stop giving your ration of bread and soup to your old father. You cannot help him anymore, and you are hurting yourself. In fact, you should be getting his rations. I listened to him without interrupting. He was right, I thought, deep down, not daring to admit it to myself. Too late to save your old father. You could have two rations of bread, two rations of soup. It was only a fraction of a second, but it left me feeling guilty. I ran to get some soup and brought it to my father, but he did not want it. All he wanted was water. Don't drink water. Eat the soup. I'm burning up. Why are you so mean to me? My son, water. I brought him water. Then I left the block for roll call, but I quickly turned back. I lay down on the upper bunk. The sick were allowed to stay in the block, so I would be sick. I didn't want to leave my father. All around me, there was silence now, broken only by moaning. In front of the block, the SS were giving orders. An officer passed between the bunks. My father was pleading, my son, water, I'm burning up, my insides. Silence over there, barked the officer. Eliza, continued my father, water. The officer came closer and shouted to him to be silent, but my father did not hear. He continued to call me. The officer wielded his club and dealt him a violent blow to the head. I didn't move, I was afraid. My body was afraid of another blow, this time to my head. My father groaned once more. 
I heard, Eliza. I could see that he was still breathing in gasps. I didn't move. When I came down from my bunk after roll call, I could see his lips trembling. He was murmuring something. I remained more than an hour leaning over him, looking at him, etching his bloody, broken face into my mind. Then I had to go to sleep. I climbed into my bunk above my father who was still alive. The date was January 28th, 1945. I woke up at dawn on January 29th. On my father's cot, there lay another sick person. They must have taken him away before daybreak and taken him to the crematorium. Perhaps he was still breathing. No prayers were said over his tomb, no candle lit in his memory. His last word had been my name. He had called out to me, and I had not answered. I did not weep, and it pained me that I could not weep, but I was out of tears. And deep inside me, if I could have searched the recesses of my feeble conscience, I might have found something like free at last. Chapter 9 I remained in Buckenwald until April 11th. I shall not describe my life during that period. It no longer mattered. Since my father's death, nothing mattered to me anymore. I was transferred to the children's block where there were 600 of us. The front was coming closer. I spent my days in total idleness with only one desire, to eat. I no longer thought of my father or my mother. From time to time, I would dream, but only about soup, an extra ration of soup. On April 5th, the wheel of history turned. It was late afternoon. We were standing inside the block, waiting for an SS to come and count us. He was late. Such lateness was unprecedented in the history of Buckenwald. Something must have happened. Two hours later, the loudspeakers transmitted an order from the camp commandment. All Jews were to gather in the apple plots. This was the end. Hitler was about to keep his promise. The children of our block did as ordered. There was no choice. Gustav, the block altesse, made it clear with his club. But on our way, we met some prisoners who whispered to us, Go back, go back to your block. The Germans plan to shoot you. Go back and don't move. We returned to the block. On our way there, we learned that the underground resistance of the camp had made the decision not to abandon the Jews and to prevent their liquidation. As it was getting late and the confusion was great, countless Jews had been passing as non-Jews. The Lagarlatest had decided that a general roll call would take place the next day. Everybody would have to be present. The roll call took place. The Lager commandment announced that the Buckenwald camp would be liquidated. Ten blocks of inmates would be evacuated every day. From that moment on, there was no further distribution of bread and soup, and the evacuation began. Every day, a few thousand inmates passed the camp's gate and did not return. On April 10th, there were still some 20,000 prisoners in the camp, among them a few hundred children. It was decided to evacuate all of us at once, by evening. Afterward, they would blow up the camp. And so we were herded onto the huge apple plots in ranks of five, waiting for the gate to open. Suddenly, the sirens began to scream, alert. We went back to the blocks. 
It was too bit, it was too late to evacuate us that evening. The evacuation was postponed to the next day. Hunger was tormenting us. We'd not eaten for nearly six days except for a few stalks of grass and some potato peels found on the grounds of the kitchen. At 10 o'clock in the morning, the SS took positions throughout the camp and began to herd the last of us towards the apple plots. The resistance movement decided at that point to act. Armed men appeared from everywhere. Bursts of gunshots, grenades exploding. We, the children, remained flat on the floor of the block. The battle did not last long. Around noon, everything was calm again. The SS had fled and the resistance had taken charge of the camp. At six o'clock that afternoon, the first American tank stood at the gates of Buchenwald. Our first act as free men was to throw ourselves onto the provisions. That's all we thought about. No thought of revenge or of parents, only of bread. And even when we were no longer hungry, not one of us thought of revenge. The next day, a few of the young men ran into Weimar to bring back some potatoes and clothes and to sleep with girls, but still, no trace of revenge. Three days after the liberation of Buchenwald, I became very ill, some form of poisoning. I was transferred to, transferred to a hospital and spent some two weeks between life and death. One day, when I was able to get up, I decided to look at myself in the mirror on the opposite wall. I would not seen myself since the ghetto. From the depths of the mirror, a corpse was contemplating me. The look in his eyes as he gazed at me has never left me.